Another edition of the Just Thinking Podcast, and I am Virgil Walker. And I am Daryl Harrison. Happy New Year to you, Oma. <laughs> Easy. Oh. oh, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. You sound like James Brown, wait a, man. Mi- wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> Wait a minute, man! You you, you add a little one of those jazz notes, man. You put up in there. What'd you do that, with that? that? That was some Happy New Year flavor, bro. This is the first okay. episode of twenty twenty two. Happy New Year to you, player, bro. Happy New Year, man. I, it's been a minute, but we are indeed back. Uh, it's twenty twenty two, brand new year, brand new season of the Just Thinking Podcast, man. Get, get this, man. We we've got seasons now of the Just Thinking Podcast. What do you think about that, man? First thing I think, man, is we're getting pretty old. <laughs> if we can, if we can look back on our podcast, you know, look look back on our podcast library, a repository, right. and we look at them now as seasons. That yes. means time is going by pretty fast, bro. <laughs> it is. It is. It is. The reality is, man, as you look back, we've covered a lot of ground. We have a massive library, man. As as you and I look at at what we're doing and what we've done and and are kind of compiling things and putting things together, man. It's been absolutely amazing. It's been a, it's been an incredible ride, man. I know we're going to get into that in just a little bit. From, by way of announcements, man, we got a brand new announcement that's incredibly important uh, that I want to tee up at the very beginning for our listeners so that they're aware of of what we've got brewing. I know you're excited about this. I'm excited about this. And really, this is kind of a one of those unique situations where it's been it's a by popular demand kind of a move that that we engaged in. Uh, for for you who are listening, those who I consider not just thinking fans, but the just thinking family, we have a brand new book that's coming. That's right. I, I said we have a brand new book that's coming. Uh, this book is an, is an important work. It's titled "Why Are You Afraid." Uh, it's important because it's part of a episode that we did, and by just popular demand. I mean, we had folks who reached out to us in every way. We were constantly getting emails, quote tweets, inbox messages, and DMs from people that were asking us if we would be willing to put this rich content into a book form that they could read uh, and study. Well, with the help of G3 Press, uh, the Executive Vice President, Editor-in-Chief Scott Annual, uh, we are able to publish this vital work and put it into the hands of thousands of people who will indeed read it. So we're, we're excited about the book. Uh, this book is going to provide a biblical approach to dealing with sinful fear 
and anxiety. Before I tell them where they go to buy the book, man, I want to give you just an opportunity if, if you want just to share a few words about it. Because again, this is, this is something that, that you spent time really unpacking, thinking about and, and throwing. This is a, this is one of those, the, the, the topics, the subject matter that you, t- you tossed up and got to me and I began working on the back end of it. But any, anything you want to add to this before I let them know where to go to get the book? Yeah, V, beyond the fact that we've got the book coming out on Why Are You Afraid, the episode that we did of that same title was actually a result of feedback and uh, and questions and suggestions that were submitted to us uh, from our Just Thinking family. So we owe mm-hmm. them a lot of credit for us actually yeah. producing that episode to begin with. So they have a lot yeah. to do with that original source material that we, that we uh, uh, basically offered to them. Through that episode, and then the book, as you mentioned, is an outgrowth of that episode on Why Are You Afraid? So again, we just want to give credit and thanks, uh, first of all, to the Lord uh, for His providence and, and, and directing us down this path, but also to our Just Thinking family who uh, feel comfortable enough with us to be able to reach out to us and uh, suggest to us... Uh, uh, addressing, uh, in this case, this particular topic, sinful fear and anxiety, because uh, they felt that our doing so would be edifying and helpful uh, to them. But now we're sort of uh, graduating from that episode into a book that that we pray uh, is going to make that content more accessible uh, to, to infinitely more numbers of people, infinitely greater numbers of people who may not listen to us uh, through the podcast, but now they'll have that content in a book form. So we're incredibly excited. Um, Really, we're more excited for our listeners and our supporters than we are ourselves. Uh, We think this is going to be a great uh, resource for the church, and we're looking forward to them, man. So why don't you tell the people how they can get it? No, no doubt. Yeah, the the book, you can go to g3men.org. That's g 3 min dot org forward slash why are you afraid so again g the number three m i n dot org forward slash why are you afraid you can go get that book uh, uh in pre-order um and uh the book the actual date drop we're still kind of playing around with the actual date so but you'll be able to pre-order the book for a for a very nice price i think it'd be very beneficial to you to to get in and pre-order that book i'm excited for g3 press because it'll be the first our, our book man is the is the inaugural mm-hmm. book that launches mm-hmm. g3 press and so right. we're we're extremely excited uh here at G3 to launch this to the point you made earlier. I think this is going to be a tremendous resource for the body of Christ as culture is, seems to be stirring up fear on every level. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's important. It's critical for the believer in Christ to know how to anchor their souls. And so this book is definitely going to be a resource that will help them. So again, if you're interested in a pre-order of the book, as this episode airs, you're going to be able to access G, the number three, M-I-N, G3men.org forward slash Why Are You Afraid? Uh, you'll be able to go there. You'll see the book, the book cover, all the info, and it'll be at a, at a greatly discounted price. So you'll want to take advantage of the pre-order. Uh, get your order. Order for yourself. Order for friends. Order for people that you know uh, that will be in need of this book. And it'll be priced in a way that you'll be able to able to purchase multiple copies. Uh, perhaps, in fact, I want to add this one thing too. We put in this book 
uh, like we do in, in 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 our other in our other book, we we made sure that there's some great questions at the back of each chapter, so you're able to really use this as a as a study guide. Uh, so if you're in a in a church group uh, where you're wanting to kind of walk through a biblical framework for dealing with fear and anxiety, uh, this this will definitely be a resource that you'll want to have. Anything else you want to add, brother? Yeah, this book. Uh, just one last uh, comment regarding the book. Why are you afraid? Uh, the book really is more of a Bible study. When you really, when you get your copy and you start going through it, you'll understand why I say that. The book is uh, more of a Bible study than just a book that you just kind of sit down and read through. Uh, the Bible study questions that Virgil and I have composed uh, that uh, that wrap up every chapter are some very deep and challenging questions. I mean, these are not your surface level Bible study questions. These these are very uh, theological. Uh, they're very introspective. So these questions are going to challenge you really to be honest with uh, God and with yourself in many ways. Uh, uh, we took sort of a uh, biblical counseling approach with a lot of the questions uh, as they're framed in the book. So we're really excited about you obtaining your copy or copies of the book uh, and then uh, understanding that as you delve into the book, that you're going to be engaged in a really deep theological Bible study uh, that we really think, again, is going to be edifying to you. Uh, Verge, one more thing I want to mention. Uh, this has nothing to do with the book, but one more announcement that I do want to get in here at the top. Uh, sure. Many of our Just Thinking family members are aware that in 2021, we had the privilege of partnering with the Masters University. The Masters University, where Dr. John MacArthur is chancellor, we had the privilege of being able to partner with Dr. Mitch Hopewell, who's the provost at Masters University, in offering the Just Thinking Scholarship. This was the inaugural Just Thinking Scholarship, where we were able to award uh, five uh, freshmen uh, who were entering the Masters University during the uh, academic year of 2021, five freshmen with a $10,000 scholarship each. Uh, so we're going to do that again this year in uh, for the academic year of 2022. We're partnering once again with the Masters University to offer the Just Thinking Scholarship beginning in academic year 2022. We've got more information on that to follow. But I just want to let you all know that uh, for parents who may be listening uh, to us who have uh, high school age children who are, are graduating this year, uh, you've got a uh, believing uh uh, son or daughter who is interesting in pursuing a biblically sound, orthodox, bibli- biblically orthodox education at the uh, college level and considering the master's university, uh, please consider that uh, the Justin scholarship is going to be available again in 2022. Again, we'll be awarding uh, in partnership with the master's university, five $10,000 scholarships. So more information about that will be forthcoming, but we did want to let you know, that we're going to be doing that again this year. What do you think about that, V? Dude, I'm excited about that, man. I got a chance uh, last month to to connect with the students who uh, were awarded the scholarship. Got a chance to connect with them and talk with them, and that's one of the, one of the additional benefits. Uh, for the students who do, uh, who, who are awarded the scholarship, is that you and I get an opportunity to to meet with them, to to share ideas with them, to challenge them, uh, and to learn from uh, from some of their experiences. So as we as we help them, guide them, shape them in a biblical worldview. So I'm inc- I'm incredibly excited uh, that we that we are partnering with Masters University. I'm incredibly excited uh, that 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 the Just Thinking Scholarship continues on, and I, and again, the excitement continues with students who'll be able to enter a wonderful. Uh, school get an incredible education, uh, and that we'll have the opportunity to to form and shape as they as they navigate life. 
Amen. So V, let's get it going, man. Let's dive into this because here we are again, by God's grace, man, back behind the microphones to record another episode of the Just Thinking Podcast. I kind of feel like our boy Eric B and Rakim. You remember those cats? <laughs> I kind of yeah, feel I, I got kind of an Eric B and Rakim vibe going on, man, because it's been months, man. What's it been like close to four months since yeah, we released our last episode? It's been a long time. We shouldn't have left them without with, yeah. without a dope show to step to, right? Yeah, yeah. It's been a long time. <laughs> we, I shouldn't have left you without a dope show to step to, step to, step to. Bro, don't get me started, bro. Don't get me started. But it, it, anyway, bro, it, it's been a while since we released a new episode, a few months, in fact. So we're humbled and thankful that after a series of ministry commitments that took you and me across the country, Sometimes together, mm-hmm. sometimes separately, that we're back together yeah. for episode 116 mm-hmm. of the Just Thinking Podcast. And it was because of the aforementioned series of speaking engagements that we gave our listeners a heads up in episode 114 that it would be a while before we'd be able to prepare and release a new episode. And I want to thank our listeners, man. Let me just take a couple seconds to thank our listeners. And I know I speak for you as well. And thanking our listeners for, for praying for us and for being patient with us. As we were away from these microphones, speaking behind other microphones in other places over the past several months. And I know you'd like to add some thoughts there as well, Omaha. So why don't you take a couple minutes, man, to do that right now? Yeah, like 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 you said, brother, it's been a, been a pretty wild ride since our last episode. Actually, the last episode that we did was our was our live episode during the 2021 National G3 Conference. Yep. And so if, if, if anyone wants to see that episode where we were together live, they can go over to the G3 Conference YouTube page uh, and see what the, the live edition of Just Thinking looked like in front of 6,400 people uh, in the audience as we covered the topic, The Antichrist of Black Liberation Theology. Now, Ooh, since that time, it, when that, that was that was some fire too, man. That was so if some you fire, have not, bro. Yeah, if you have not, if you have not listened to that, have not watched that, I'm going to encourage you, you again. Go go to the uh, G3 Conference YouTube page and check that out. The Antichrist of Black Liberation Theology. Since that time, man, we've crisscrossed the country. We've gone from Michigan to Florida and all points in between. Uh, we've been making appearances, like you said, both separately and together. Uh, and, and as we tell everyone, there's definitely a different dynamic when you and I are together. Yeah. When, when we're together at, in a specific place, it's just a whole different vibe that we bring. But it's been great over the past three months. I'm glad that we have the opportunity to get behind these microphones and do what we do in this space. As you as you already mentioned, we're grateful for the immense support of the fans. And I, again, I, I, I'm, I, I, call, I don't call them fans. They're, for me, they're family, especially as they come to us uh, from Texas to New York City. Uh, just thinking family, they come out, man. When they know we're they going do. to be somewhere, bro, they, they, <clears throat> folks will drive two and three hours to connect with us, to see us. They'll stay over on Sunday to, to enjoy worship if they know we're going to be there. And so it's a tremendous blessing to, to have the folks out there that have their support, and we're, we're forever grateful. Now, Omaha, with that said, man, thank you for sharing that, bro. As we get started here on this episode of the Justin Thinking Podcast, I had originally considered a different topic than the one we're addressing today. Now, I won't say what that topic is because, Lord willing, we may very well end up dealing with that topic in an upcoming episode. But needless to say, the topic we're approaching today, like the topic that shall go unnamed, 
is one that I felt burdened, right? It's, it's a topic that, 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 that I felt... That unnamed yeah, topic. That unnamed topic. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that unnamed topic. It's one that I felt burdened to bring to light, though. And consequently, we've titled this episode of the Just Thinking Podcast, The Church and Culture. The Church and Culture. Now, more specifically, what we're going to be discussing today are some general biblical principles and precepts, specifically with regard to what it looks like or should look like for professing believers in Jesus Christ to be in the world while not being of the world. You know, we hear that phrase a lot, Omaha, that Christians are in the world, but not of the world. But do we really understand what we mean when we say that? Do we really have any idea from where that precept is derived in Scripture? Now, needless to say, I think it's important that we do understand what we mean when we say those words because they refer to a doctrinal idea that is not insignificant for those of us who claim the name of Jesus Christ. And I say that in light of these penetrating words from the Prince of Preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who said this, quote, How many of you look around on society to know what to do? You watch the general current and then float upon it. You study the popular breeze and shift your sails to suit it. True men do not do so. You ask, is it fashionable? If it be fashionable, it must be done. Fashion is the law of multitudes, but it is nothing more than the common consent of fools. The world has its fashions in religion as well as in dress, and many of you feel the influence of it. Unquote. That was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. So Omaha, on those mic drop words, I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to you for your thoughts, bro. No doubt. Yeah, I'm excited, man, to address this topic. I'd say for the last like decade or so, we've heard about the and listened to people talk about in culture, the culture wars, the culture wars. Mm -hmm. However, when we think about a culture war, we primarily believe this to be an issue of political policies and sociocultural challenges to a particular moral issue. But as you and I have stated on numerous occasions, the culture war is a battle of moralism. Now, mm -hmm. moralism is a worthy cause. However, it's downstream from what it means to be in the world and not of the world. And I, I know you, you would agree with that. Mm -hmm. in, the period, in, in, in the period of the, quote, culture war environment, end quote, most Christians found themselves aligning with conservative politics. However, over the last 10 years, we've learned that conservatism devoid of fundamental understanding of the issues, which we'll discuss in this episode, becomes a vacuous political approach doomed to fail, as others have previously failed. At the same time, when we think about the culture war, many evangelical conservatives would not believe that they were replacing Christianity with conservatism. Often, however, this is exactly the end result of what they do. Whoa, 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 whoa. I know we I know we're early in the episode, bro, but I think we just might have our first Hammond B three moment of twenty twenty two. I need you to go back, bro, and hit that statement again where you talked about us replacing Christianity with conservatism. Yeah, yeah. Bro, at, hit at that the, again, V. Absolutely, man. At the same time, when we think about I'm I'm talking about the idea of the culture war. This idea has permeated culture and Christian circles for quite some time, but it's primarily, the point that I'm making is this is primarily a political uh, a direction. 
rather than one that is that is steeped in in the kinds of things I don't want to give away what what we're going to talk about here but 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 I'm simply teeing this up this is simply an intro we we we're, we're embracing this culture war idea and we're engaged in in moralism and again it has its it has its flavor but what happens is as a result of the embrace of the culture war many evangelical conservatives would not believe that they were replacing Christianity with conservatism often however this is the exact result mm-hmm. and effect. Mm-hmm. This fact is evidence in a lack of ability for many churches to stand firm on issues like biblical sufficiency while maintaining a stand against social justice, gender confusion, the LGBTQIA mafia, sex, same-sex marriage, the third way of CRT, and a whole host of other issues. The capitulation on these issues come from a lack of understanding of the gr- of, of groundwork that we're going to cover in this episode. Furthermore, this episode really sl- serves as a clarion call to abandon the idea that the positions that we hold uh, as as believers in Christ are issues that will get us loved or even liked by the culture. Man, come on. On on the contrary, our positions will do more than get us removed from our favorite social media platform in the days to come. In, in the days ahead, we will have our personal lives disrupted. And, and some may even suffer imprisonment. For others, they may even have their lives called upon for what they believe. Mm-hmm. For those who think that this is hyperbole, it isn't. Generations of Christ followers have given their lives for standing on what they believe. Only ignorance and self-denial provide us with the idea that we won't be required to do the same. Needless to say, bro, I'm excited about the ground we're going to cover I believe the the topic that you selected is earth shattering. And, and, and really, as we cover it in this one episode, we could spend the next three, four, five episodes dealing with specific aspects uh, of it that, mm-hmm. that affect culture. But I know this is a general overview and I'm going to turn things back over to you. That was an incredible overview, bro. Thanks for sharing that, man. You know, the, the phrase in the world, but not of the world, Omaha, is often repeated by many professing Christians as if there were one single verse in the Bible that contains those words. But that would be incorrect. The biblical precept of being in the world, but not of the world, actually comes from two very specific scripture verses, both of which are found in John chapter 17, in what is commonly referred to in biblical theology as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Now, it's called the high priestly prayer in the sense that Jesus, as our high priest, demonstrated in John 17 what we see described in Hebrews chapter 5, Verse 7, which in the, of course, non-Arminian Standard Bible translation reads, In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Again, that was Hebrews 5, 7. Now, we can further understand what the writer in Hebrews 5, 7 is saying against the backdrop of the role of, of the Levitical high priest in the Old Testament, who, as it is detailed in this blog article from Ligonier Ministries from March 2004, titled The High Priest's Purpose, in that the role of the high priest was, quote, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins on behalf of men in relation to God. He is, he being the high priest, was the mediator between God and the people. God would come in judgment because of the sins of the people and the high priest would stand in their place, offering sacrifices that satisfied God's justice 
and demonstrated his mercy by punishing an innocent animal in place of a guilty human being, unquote. So that was from the, an article by Ligonier Ministries titled The High Priest's Purpose. Now, I want to augment that passage that I just read from the aforementioned uh, Ligonier article by reading from Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 through 27, which gives us further insight into Christ's role as our high priest in light of the prayer that he offered in John chapter 17. So I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 through 27. Verse 23, the former priests on the, on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to also save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Again, that was Hebrews chapter 7, verses 7, I'm sorry, verses 23 through 27. So, with all this background on how when we consider biblically the concept of professing Christians being in the world but not of it, we must go back to the origins of that doctrine and realize that it is a doctrine that is built upon not one single verse, but two verses in the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17. And those two verses are verse 11a, so the first part of verse 11, and then verse 16. Verse 11a reads where Jesus says this. He says, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. Okay, so that's the first half of that precept that comes out of verse 11. And then verse 16, Jesus says, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So we have here two declarations made by Jesus. Number one, in verse 11a, you have the prepositional phrase, they themselves are in the world. And then number two, in verse 16, you have the prepositional phrase, they are not of the world. Okay. In the world, not of the world. So when taken together, okay, which is to say when taken in context, those two declarative statements by Jesus in John 17, 11 and John 17, 16 present us with two concurrent realities as professing Christians. Number one, we are in the world. And number two, we are not of the world. Now, Omaha, it would seem that those two realities should be obvious to us as Christians. And yet we speak so lightly and so flippantly of those realities that we essentially treat them as if they were little more than bumper sticker phrases or slogans on a T-shirt. Now, I'm going to elaborate on that further in a moment. But in the meantime, is there anything you want to add to what I said to this point? Yeah, no, absolutely, man. There, there are two words that you said in, in, in kind of in, in closing of that section that I think are crucial. And those two words were, you said, professing Christians, right? Professing right. Christians. Right. You said, you said in John 17, 11 and, and, verse, and 17, verse 16, present us with two concurrent realities. And at the end of that, you said for professing Christians, mm -hmm. right? So the precondition of those called to be in the world, but not of the world is that they are indeed 
Christian. Bingo. Now, I, re- I you and I recognize that that our our primary audience uh, is aimed at believers. Right. Uh, but how how often is it that we find that those who profess Christ really don't follow Christ? Uh, mm. And so I think I think it's imperative that we even we take a look just for a second at the preconditions that are that that are part of being in the world and not of the world. Uh, in our current evangelical environment of easy believism, many have engaged in a formulaic approach to faith where a person tacitly acknowledges that they've made some, quote, mistakes in life, end quote, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And desiring a better life than the one they currently possess, they're convinced by a 25-minute kind of TED Talk-like movie-themed sermon to pray a prayer and receive eternal life. That's kind of what we see in our culture, unfortunately. Right, yep. All of this is contrary to the calls of Jesus from Scripture. Take, for example, when Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sister, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Mm. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. That's Luke 14, 26 and 27 in the elect standard version of the scriptures. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Yeah. Or, or when Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take, take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever, who, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in, gl- in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to to what he has done, Matthew 16, verses 24 through 27. In the London Baptist Confession of Faith, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, in chapter 11 on justification, paragraph 2 reads, quote, faith, is the, faith thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness is the alone instrument of justification, yet is not alone in the, in the person justified, mm. but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces, and is no dead faith, but works by love, end quote. We seem to understand Ephesians 2, 8, 9, which read, For by grace we've been saved through faith, and this is not of our own doing. It is a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. However, we forget that Ephesians 2, 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk therein. For the Christian... The work prepared beforehand endures suffering. Let me say that again. For the Christian, the work prepared beforehand endures suffering. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the church at Philippi writes, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, Mm -hmm. so that whether I come to see you or or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake." Verse 30, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here I still have. Philippians 1, 27 
through 30. I could go on and on, I think, but you get the mm. point. The, mm-hmm. the life of the believer will involve sacrifice and suffering. And this is not to obtain salvation. Instead, it is the evidence that follows those of us who believe in Christ. I just thought it was important to lay that those preconditions to the, the those professing Christ, right? Everybody, you know, you ask anybody, they, they'll claim, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. And what they mean is I'm an American. But, but what I wanted to oh, unpack boy. there— it, yeah, what I wanted to unpack in that section is <laughs> is being a Christian means something much more, and it has everything to do with the fact that we will indeed suffer in this life for the sake of truth. Man, I turn it back over to you. V, I got to ask you, man, let me just divert here for one second, man. In the, in the f- almost four months that we've been away from these microphones on the Justin and Podcast, man, where did you go, man? What, what did you do? Because you, you, you're coming back— with. I mean, bro, with such fire, man. I mean, <laughs> flame. I mean, flamethrower level fire, bro. What what has happened, man? What is it, or is it the Red Bull? Is is it the Red Bull it, right about? I, I I wish I wish I could say it was. It's not the Red Bull. I'm telling you, I I, I can honestly tell you what it is, bro. What it's is two it, bro? things? It's two things. One, I get a chance to sit under fire preaching every single oh, Sunday. Yes. By Dr. Josh Bice. Yes, sir. I, 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 I sit under fire preaching every day. But the other piece of it is, man, uh, you know, about the time that, that I made this transition, I just really felt like, man, the shackles had been let off. I mean, you, you remember we were when, when I was yes, still sir. in Omaha. We've had many we conversations talking. about that, bro. Yeah, we, we were talking and, and I just felt like, you know, it was time. Shackles were let off. I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm free to say and do what I want to. Uh, I, don't, I don't have to. I don't answer to anyone who would have problems with 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 the, the clear declaration and exposition of truth. And so I uh, just felt like the shackles are off, man. I, I've been you and I've been connecting. I've, I've gotten to sit under your your preaching, teaching in spaces and places where we are. And, and, the, and again, the phenomenal people who come through G3, all, all of that combined man it's just added added fuel to the fire i recognize time is short uh, we've got to be very Amen. clear Amen. I mean, in, in, in our in our time together with what with what the word has to say thanks for sharing that bro i i, I love this fresh new omaha bro this shackleless omaha <laughs> we, 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 I, I know our woke listeners won't appreciate me using the adjective shackleless if you get my drift but <laughs> hey so be it man it's my show i can say what i want uh but but I just appreciate your energy, bro. Thanks for sharing that. You know, so given the, uh, if I can just pick up where I left off earlier and, and say that given the two concurrent realities, right, that I mentioned earlier, that believers in Jesus Christ are in the world, but not of the world, the challenge for the church today is to understand the significance of those two two-letter prepositions, that word in and of, okay? We need to understand the significance of those two Two-letter words. In other words, what are the biblical implications and ramifications of those two often overlooked words to us who comprise the church in the 21st century? Again, going back to what you just reiterated, Omaha, in that the first prerequisite, the first requirement is that you are truly regenerate because that is the only definition of the church from both an individual and a collective or corporate perspective. The church is comprised of believers. The church is not comprised of unbelievers. So as I talk about the significance of what those uh, those words in and of represent, I'm talking to the church. I'm not talking to believers, okay? Now, as it relates to that question, though, and as it relates to us understanding the implications 
and ramifications of those two little prepositions in and of the first thing I think we need to realize is that those two words establish for us a clear distinction an unambiguous line of demarcation, so to speak, between the world that is unbelievers and the church, namely believers. Okay. Which is to say what I'm saying there simply is that the church is not the world and the world is not the church. Come now, on, man. That's ho, 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 ho. You need to go back over that because the reality is so we, we miss it. We, we, we miss it. And I know we're going to, I know we're going to unpack this later on, man, but, but, but that needs to be said again. That was so nice. You have to say it twice because in our culture, people are not, under, the ch- church at large is trying to replicate themselves as mm-hmm. the world mm-hmm. in an effort to be relevant. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think, I think it bears you, you, well, even that section where you're unpacking what, what, who the church is, who the world is, who unbelievers are, who believers are. And that needs to be said again. Yeah, so you get the what I was what I was trying to convey earlier was that in that uh, in those verses in John seventeen and verses eleven and sixteen, you have two prepositions there. You have in and of, and those are two words that we just totally gloss over. We totally ignore mm-hmm. them. But those two mm-hmm. words are very significant because, as I was saying earlier, what they do for us as believers, they establish a clear distinction, a, a, an un, unambiguous line of demarcation between the world and the church. And I may be saying the obvious here is I'm thinking about that old maxim that sometimes you can't see the forest for the trees. Well, this is one of those examples for us in the church. We, we don't see that those two little uh, two letter words are very, they're crucial. They're incredibly important Mm -hmm. because they establish a distinction between the world and the church. And that's to say that the church is not the world and the world is not the church. And it may seem as if I'm stating the obvious by saying that, but trust me, there was more to me saying that than you might think. Now, let me, right. let me, let me expand on that. In John 17, nine, Jesus in praying to his heavenly father said very clearly, quote, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me for they are yours. Unquote. Now there is so much there to unpack from those words of Jesus in John 17, nine Omaha, not the least of which, is that Jesus's words totally debunk the idea that the church is to somehow endeavor or strive to be united with or be a, quote, bridge, unquote, to the world, as some of our more progressive evangelicals today would argue. Now, let me make this clear. The way of salvation is through a cross, not a bridge. Okay, (laughs) the way of salvation is through a cross, not a bridge. The -hmm. Apostle Paul said in Galatians 614, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul says that the cross of Christ has rendered him dead to the world. Conversely, Paul confessed in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. You see, Omaha, spiritually dead people don't need a bridge to cross. Right. A spiritually dead person is dead. Right, right. Again, I don't mean to sound redundant, but it's necessary here. A spiritually dead person doesn't need a bridge to cross because they're dead. They're dead. 
What is it within a spiritually dead person that's going to motivate that person to want to approach that bridge to Christ to begin with? Nothing. He's dead. She's dead. So spiritually dead people don't need a bridge to cross. What they need is a cross to carry. That's what a spiritually dead person needs. Okay, that's Ephesians 2, 8. They're dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now that said, my question is this, Omaha. To my listeners, please listen closely here. Why would the church, which is to say, why would believers, because it's believers that comprise the church, as I said earlier, why would the church, whether through pragmatic bridge building or some other world attracting methodology, attempt to join itself with a world that Jesus himself did not pray for or to Mm. a world that presumably it has been crucified to? Right. Now, Jesus saw the world and the church as being two completely separate and distinct realities. It's what I call the church culture distinction, or or if you prefer the church world distinction, however you want to say that. A consequence of that is that we who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ should reflect that distinction in the way we live in this world. Jesus said, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me. So the question for us becomes, to which of those two groups do you and I belong? Do we belong to the group alluded to by Jesus before the word, but in John 17, 9, or to the group that Jesus is alluding to after the word, but in John 17, 9? There are only two groups of people we belong to. You either belong to the one group or to the other. That's, that is, you either belong to the world or to the church. There is no straddling the fence because rest assured, listeners, you belong to one of those two groups, but you can't belong to both. Okay, every person listening to me right now belongs to one of those two groups, but you cannot belong to both. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter five, verses six through eight, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now, okay, there's that demarcation again. You were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. As a result of that, right, walk as children of light, Paul says. So that's one significant uh, aspect of the distinction of, or rather the the, the significance of those two uh, prepositions in and of now a second important implication of Jesus's words in John 17 is that in establishing for us the distinction between the church and the world, Jesus's words in verses 11 and 16 of John 17 completely destroy the doctrine of universalism. Now here's where I'm going to step on some toes, Omar, but I don't oh. care because that's what, right. you know, that, this is what we do on the Justine podcast. <laughs> we step in it. We step on toes. But Jesus' words in John 17, 11, and 16 completely destroyed the doctrine of universalism. Now, in short, universalism as a doctrine teaches that ultimately, okay, eventually, everyone will go to heaven when they die. That's universalism in a nutshell. Universalism promotes a soteriology of salvation by death, meaning the only thing a person needs to do in order to get to heaven is to die. That's all they need to do is die. That's what universalism promotes. But the sad thing about that Omaha is that sentimentalism, an issue you've spent a great deal of time talking about and unpacking as we've traveled across the country over the past several months, 
Sentimentalism has become so prevalent within the evangelical church today that many who profess to be regenerate believers are in reality merely functioning universalists Mm -hmm. because they've convinced themselves that a, quote, God of love, unquote, would never send anyone to hell. Mm-hmm. So, so many people out there listening to me right now who would profess to be regenerate believers, uh, regenerate followers of Christ, what they really are in reality is just functioning universalists because mm-hmm. that's what they believe. They believe that God of love theory, that, that, that God's love is just boundaryless. It's a black hole so that God, God's love would render uh, 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 himself incapable of sending anyone to hell. But let me quote from Dr. Timothy K. Bower. Timothy Bower is the Billy Graham Associate Professor of Evangelicalism, of Evangelism rather, and Church Growth Strategy at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Dr. Bower provides some much needed some much needed insight into what universalism is in an article he wrote titled "Are All Doomed to Be Saved?" Subtitled "The Rise of Modern Universalism," in which he says this quote. Universalism may may be defined as the teaching that though hell may exist, it will eventually empty as God's will to save all persons individually will finally triumph. All human beings ultimately will be saved. Hell thereby becomes a, quote, means of grace, unquote, where God's love eventually wins everyone, even Judas, and some would say even Satan, back to himself. The doctrine of universalism has been presented differently by those who have advocated it throughout the centuries. Some have claimed that no person is bad enough to be rejected ultimately. Recent universalism stresses that God's power and love is so great that it will secure eventually the salvation of the entire human race. As Richard Baucom notes, quote, only the belief that ultimately all men will be saved is common to all universalists, unquote. How then does the universalistic position work out in practice? While there are varying versions, universalists generally agree that those who leave this world in unbelief will enter hell. But having entered, they will sooner or later come out, having been brought to their senses and seeing their error and not acknowledging Christ. While in hell, they will make a positive response to Christ because their suffering will have opened their eyes to the truth. Thus, hell is real, but is only temporary. All will be saved eventually, and God's universal salvific desire will have come to pass. No one will be finally lost. Hell will end up empty. Unquote. That was Dr. Timothy K. Bjower from his article, all, Are All Doomed to Be Saved? The Rise of Modern Universalism. Now, at this point, Omaha, someone listening to us may be asking themselves, what in the world does universalism have to do with the church and culture or with the church culture distinction? Well, it has to do with it because if the doctrine of universalism is true, okay, If the doctrine doctrine of universalism is true, if it is true that ultimately, quote, love wins, unquote, as Rob Bell infamously declared several years ago in his book by that same title. If it is true that love wins, then the distinction between the church and the world is rendered completely moot, as there would be no reason or need for you or me to live in such a way as to distinguish ourselves as being in this world, but not of it. 
If universalism is true, then we are completely free to ignore Jesus's words in Luke six forty six, where he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? If universalism is true, then obedience to Christ becomes a non sequitur because there would no longer be such a thing as sin. And if there is no sin, there is no atonement. And if there is no atonement, there is no savior. And if there is no savior, then there is no God. And if there is no God, your entire life is meaningless and has been meaningless from the very moment you were conceived in the womb. Now, by the way, before I hand it over to you, Omaha, for your thoughts, for any evangelical universalist who may be listening to me right now, who happen to subscribe to the Rob Bell School of Soteriology, namely that, quote, love wins, unquote, and that a, quote, God of love, unquote, could never send anyone to hell. I have three passages of scripture to commend to you for further study. Okay, those three passages are John chapter three, verse three, verse 36. So John three thirty six, then second Thessalonians chapter one, verses five through nine, with an emphasis on verse seven, verses seven through nine. Okay, so second Thessalonians one, verses five through nine, with an emphasis on verses seven through nine. And then Revelation chapter 21, verse 27. Now, if you can study those passages objectively and still come back to me and say you're a universalist, then more power to you because there's nothing I can say after that. Omaha, what you got, bro? Man, you covered a lot of ground uh, in that section. And again, as always, man, I, I just pause to tell folks that they need to slow. It's one thing that we, we get these these episodes done uh, you know, over the course of a, of a month and then let folks know there's enough content for them to go back to. That section that you just laid out was was definitely one of those that, that could be studied for some time in an effort to help people tremendously. But I want to leap off of something that you said uh, about universalists, because I, 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 I don't I don't know if you if you even recognize what you landed on. And so I want to I want to amplify it for our listeners uh, by by way of uh, by way of this next next section that I'll walk through, the universalist effort to help God out by proclaiming everyone is saved or everyone will eventually be saved actually strips God of His glory, both in the saving of the lost and the condemning of guilty sinners. If God has no wrath for sin, how how we live is actually irrelevant. Mm-hmm. And if that's true, then saving culture. Uh, the, the, the culture war, so to speak, it, it's irrelevant as well. It doesn't matter. We can all live any way in which we desire if universalism is true. While universalism is easy to destroy, again, based on the scriptures, Daryl, that you mentioned, mm-hmm. functional universalism mm-hmm. is much more insidious. Amen. For the for the past decade or more, sentimentalism has paved the way for pragmatic approaches in everything from music to preaching, uh, from when we meet on the Lord's Day to how long we stay in a particular service. Sentimentalism has forced many preachers to abandon biblical ecclesiology, expository preaching, and the regulative principle in worship. And all of this is done to appease angry sinners who hate God, who worship themselves, and who see the church as a social club where they are the center of attention and the primary need is fulfilled in their comfort. Man, whoa, 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 ho, 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 ho. I'm going to need you to moonwalk that back, bro, because 
I need some Hammond right here. I need the B3 to go ahead and do his thing right here. I need you to moonwalk that back, bro, and then hit it one more time, bro. Do it. Yeah. Sentimentalism has forced many preachers to abandon biblical ecclesiology, mm-hmm. expository preaching, and the regulative principle in worship. And all of this is done to appease angry sinners who hate God. Man. Those same angry sinners worship themselves, and they see the church as a social club where they are the center of attention, and the primary need to be fulfilled is their comfort. Functional wow. universalism has created church planners focused more on branding than being rooted in their Bible. Man, Functional universalism on. has created churchgoers rather than church followers. Functional universalism has created people seeking churches that look like them rather than places where they leave looking more like Christ. Functional universalism has created people who seek diversity as a virtue instead of denying self as a value. Functional universalism has demanded that church services create personal, emotional experiences rather than a place where the exaltation of God's eternal existence is on display. Functional universalism requires rock concert-like openings to services rather than reverent calls to worship the triune God of the universe. Functional universalism, or FU for short, has actually turned on God, embraced the world, and now works for the enemy. (laughs) That's really where we are. Come on, bro. Sadly, the virulent insidiousness of this FU virus has infected far too many denominations to mention. However, we can witness its effect in the vast majority of so-called churches as preachers, and I put that in air quotes, yep. attempt to strip the church from the gates of hell-defying power that Christ called the church to be. It's crazy how much we've exchanged the exchanged Christ likeness for cultural relevance within evangelicalism. And fundamentally, Daryl, it actually goes back to what you said early, early in the commentary that you just had, where you said that the way of salvation is through the cross and not a bridge. Yep. Believers have been building a bridge to and to where it's unclear since they've remained on the same side of the bridge that the world has been standing on from the beginning. I turn it back over to you. Man, that was an amazing, amazing section, Omaha. Bro. I, I, I wanted to spend some Come time. Come on, man. I, I think I what you ca- what you captured when you talked about you, you touched on the you know hey you know the sentimentalism piece and then you you landed on what what that has ended ended in or the end result of, of the sentimentalism piece are many of us in evangelicalism are are functioning universalists. Yep. Yep. I I, I wanted to take some time because I I don't think you realized when you when you said that that that. That's something that that's a lens we need to capture and think about as we walk through uh, culture, especially church culture, and to see why people are looking more like the world, why so-called believers are looking more like the world. Why? Mm-hmm. It's because they really don't believe that there's a need for a savior. They really do right. believe that ultimately at the end of the day, every love wins. So so while they, they may not subscribe uh, in, a, in, an, in an explicit way to Rob Bell— uh, they are functioning in a manner that's reflective of that uh, ideological, I don't want to even call it a theological position, that ideological position. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more there, man. As a matter of fact, those who, and that was why I was so, um, and I'm dogmatic, I'm dogmatic about this. Um, I didn't stutter when I said earlier 
that many professing Christians are essentially functioning universalists because right. their their um, their ideology, and I think that was a perfect word for it. It's not a theology, it's an ideology. No. But but yeah. here's the thing. We've got many Christians out there who have conflated ideology with theology. So what they have yes. is what they would say though, what they they wouldn't say explicitly that they're from the Rob Bell School of Soteriology, as I said earlier. Right. But if you right. were to challenge if, if you were to challenge them to articulate that, that's exactly what they would articulate. They would have no other choice than to articulate that, yeah, I matter of fact, I am from the Rob School Rob Bell School of Soteriology because my idea my ideology, my ideology that I think is a theology, is actually moralism. And you alluded mm-hmm. to that earlier. Functioning mm-hmm. universalism is moralism. Mm-hmm. That, 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 if you want to really narrow that down, functioning universalism is moralism. And as you said earlier, moralism, you see, you don't need, and I'm going to talk about this later on, but you don't, a moralist doesn't need a savior because the moralist is his or her own savior. I'm saved by my morality. I'm saved by my own good works. I'm saved by my own good intentions. I'm saved by my own good, good moral, uh, moral uh, incentive. It's internal to me. So the moralist Mm -hmm. doesn't need a savior. So even the, even the, the functioning universalist, or as I refer to them, the evangelical universalists. You don't need a savior mm-hmm. because what's the savior going to save you from? There's nothing right. you need to be saved from. Right. You're already moral. So, so it's, it's that sort of soteriological hamster wheel. You just never get off of it. But when you yep. challenge the universalists, when you challenge the universalists to, to explain or to defend their soteriology, their doctrine of salvation, it narrows down to moralism, and then you, 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 they're trapped by the fact that they'll say they need a savior, but they can't define what they're saved from. Yeah, absolutely. The, fun, the functional universalist, man, is weak on gospel presentation, and gospel proclamation is non-existent. And, and, and what, what I mean by that is, if you ask the functional universalist, the evangelical universalist— and again, they're not—they're not going to explicitly claim that they that they hold to that position, but they will demonstrate that reality by their lack of ability to actually explain what the gospel is. Right. So, so they're they're weak on gospel presentation and gospel proclamation. So going out and proclaiming uh, the world's need for a savior and and in the message of the gospel. Is non-existent. So, so again, I, I think that I think far too many believers who claim belief in Christ, who profess Christianity, to the point you made. That's why when you said that, I thought that's that's the anchor. That that's that's what our folks need. That's a that's another lens that you've given, and you've given numerous lenses over the course of our time on this podcast. That's another lens that we need to put on and look at as we examine our our, our culture, our church culture in particular. Now, now, V, before I pick back up. On my notes, you just hit on something, man. When you talked about being weak on gospel presentation, mm-hmm. you mentioned earlier that you sit under fire preaching and you do, you sit under fire preaching every Sunday at Praise Mill Baptist Church in uh-huh. Georgia under the leadership yep. of Dr. Josh Bice. And, 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 and the, and the elders here, there's, there's not, and, there's and not the one of them that get up, man. They're just, they're all beasts. I sit under fire preaching at Grace Community Church. I have the honor and privilege of being able to sit there and listen to Dr. John MacArthur preach and then the elders uh, there preach uh, when Dr. MacArthur is not in the pulpit. I want to say something as it relates to your point about um, uh, evangelical evangelical universalists and functional universalists being weak on gospel presentation. 
They're weak on gospel presentation because their pulpits are weak on gospel presentation. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's why they're weak. That's Mm -hmm. reason number one. Reason number two, and there are any number of reasons. I mean, this this idea of functional universalism could be an episode of the Just Thinking Podcast all on its own. As we as <laughs> yeah. we talk through none of what we've been dialoguing about the past five minutes is in our notes at all. Mm-mm. So but but it's Mm-mm. a point that needs to be uh discussed. Reason number two, uh reason number one is that your your pulpits are weak. That you you don't mm-hmm. sit under expositional gospel preaching. Number two, you don't understand what the gospel is. You, you alluded to that earlier as well. So you mm-hmm. don't have ex- expositional gospel preaching from the pulpit if these folks attend the church at all. <clears throat> and then secondarily, they don't know what the gospel is. So if you don't know, if you don't have a biblical understanding of what the gospel is, how can you present it? You right. don't even know what it is. You, so you don't know what it is. You, you don't sit under expository preaching. You don't read your Bible because you don't know how. You've not been taught. I mean, we could go on and on. But what saddens me, I think, again, is that the vast majority of professing Christians who would who would profess to be followers of Jesus Christ, who would profess to say that they are trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, who would profess to say that when they stand before God, all they're going to have uh, to 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 as as a defense uh, for uh, uh, why. Uh, uh, they should spend eternity with God in his heaven is Jesus Christ's com- uh, curriculum vitae, not their own. They are actually evangelical universalists. They are functioning universalists who see morality as salvific. They're not trusting in the work, the, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They're not trusting it. They, they're not. And, and, and that's an important uh, uh, aspect of this whole conversation about the, the church and culture that needs to be discussed. And maybe we'll continue this in another episode of this Just Thinking Podcast. But man, thank you for for taking us down this road, uh, Omaha, because it was a necessary road that we need to go down. It, anything you want to add, man, before I pick back up uh, where we left no, off? Man, your commentary led that direction because of because of what you said. I mean, when 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 I heard that and I thought about that, I thought that's the key right there. Functional universalism. Mm-hmm. That's that's what we're seeing in culture. And I just leapt off of that. So that's where it came from. Thanks, bro. You know, in, in his book titled On the Christian Life, which is taken from his uh, incredible uh, work, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, the 16th century French reformer John Calvin says this, quote, he said, ever since God exhibited himself to us as a father, we must be convicted of extreme ingratitude if we do not in turn exhibit ourselves as his sons. Ever since Christ purified us by the lever of his blood and communicated this purification by baptism, it would ill become us to be defiled with new pollution. Ever since he engrafted us into his body, we who are his members should anxiously beware of contracting any stain or taint ever since he who is our head ascended to heaven. It is befitting in us to withdraw our affections from the earth and with our whole soul aspire to heaven. Ever since the Holy spirit dedicated us as temples to the Lord, we should make it our endeavor to show forth the glory of God and guard against being profaned by the defilement of sin. Ever since our soul and body were destined to heavenly incorruptibility and an unfading crown, we should earnestly strive to keep them pure 
and uncorrupted against the day of the Lord. These, I say, are the surest foundations of a well-regulated life, and you will search in vain for anything resembling them among philosophers who, in their commendation of virtue, never rise higher than the natural dignity of man, unquote. That's good. That's good. That was John Calvin from his book On the Christian Life. Now, of the passage that I just quoted from Calvin, I want to repeat one sentence. Calvin said, quote, we should earnestly strive to keep our soul and body pure and uncorrupted against the day of the Lord, unquote. Calvin's exhortation reminds me, Omaha, of the words we find in James chapter one, verse 27 B, that as believers in Jesus Christ, we are to endeavor to keep ourselves, James said, unstained by the world, unstained by the world. Now, the phrase unstained by the world is an excellent description of how professing believers in Jesus Christ should view the church world distinction. This world is stained by sin. It's been in that condition since even Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden. That's Genesis 3. Consequently, everything about this world is tainted by sin. As Charles Haddon Spurgeon writes in his sermon titled The Battle of Life, quote, Do you resolve to do the right and to love the true? Depend upon it. You will get no assistance from this world. Of its maxims, nine out of ten are false and the other one selfish. And even that which is selfish has a lie at the bottom of it. As for its customs, well, live where you may. The customs of this world are not such as a citizen of heaven can endorse. Unquote. Spurgeon said the customs of this world are not such as a citizen of heaven can endorse. And you know, Omaha, as I reflect on those sobering words from Charles Spurgeon, I can't help thinking about Romans 8. And the two verses from that chapter that many professing Christians tend to know best, namely verse one, where it says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And conversely, verse 28, of course, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, as true and as dependable and as reliable as those aforementioned verses in Romans eight are. There is another verse in that chapter, which I believe warrants our focused attention and consideration, particularly in light of the discussion we're having on this episode of the Just Thinking Podcast about the church and culture or the church culture distinction. The verse I'm referring to is verse 21, where the Apostle Paul declares that the entirety of creation has been subjected to what he describes as slavery to corruption. Okay, so that's Romans 8:21, slavery to corruption. Now, for purposes of context, Omaha, because one thing we endeavor to do here on the Just Thinking Podcast is to discuss the topics we address within an orthodox biblical worldview. So context is important. Okay, so for purposes of context, it's important to note here that the word corruption in Romans 8.21 is the Greek feminine noun phthora. It's pronounced phthora. It's spelled P-H-T-H-O-R-A. Phthora. So that's the Greek word for the word corruption in 821 and that greek adjective sorry that greek noun is speaking of the decay of the world in a moral and ethical sense not in a physical sense okay so when you see the word corruption there in romans 821 
The Greek feminine noun for Thora, which is a word for corruption, is speaking of the decay of the world in a moral and ethical sense. And we see that moral and ethical decay manifesting itself in any number of ways today, not only in the world, but sadly in the evangelical church as well. As God's standards of righteousness are continually ignored and set aside in exchange for worldly acceptance, acclaim, and approval. As John MacArthur writes in his book titled Ashamed of the Gospel, subtitled When the Church Becomes Like the World, quote, the church has accommodated our culture by devising a brand of Christianity where taking up one's cross is optional or even mm. unseemly. Mm. Indeed, many members of the church in the Western world suppose they can best serve God by being as non-confrontive to their world as possible, unquote. Yep, yep. Sounds like you might want me to repeat that one, huh, Omaha? Would Come I be right on, about? man. That, absolutely, man. That was so good. That was so nice. You got to say it twice. This is John MacArthur from his book titled The Shame of the Gospel, When the Church Becomes Like the World. Quote, the church has accommodated our culture by devising a brand of Christianity where taking up one's cross is optional or even unseemly. Indeed, many members of the church in the Western world suppose they can best serve God by being as non-confrontive to the world as possible. Unquote. J.C. Ryle goes even further than that. Ryle says this, quote, The tendency of modern thought is to reject dogmas, creeds, and every kind of bounds in religion. It is thought grand and wise to condemn no opinion whatsoever and to pronounce all earnest and clever teachers to be trustworthy, however heterogeneous and mutually destructive their opinions may be. <laughs> Everything is true and nothing is false. Everybody is right and nobody is wrong. Everybody is likely to be saved and nobody is to be lost. The atonement and substitution of Christ, the personality of the devil, the miraculous element in scripture, the reality and eternity of future punishment, all these mighty foundation stones are coolly tossed overboard like lumber in order to lighten the ship of Christianity and enable it to keep up with the modern thought of the world, unquote. Wow. wow. That was J.C. Ryle. Now, before I turn it over to you, Omaha, for some additional thoughts and comments, I think this is a good point in our, our conversation about the church world distinction to pause and add some clarity to what we mean when we use the phrase the world. Okay. Now, one would think that on a platform such as Adjusting Your Podcast, we wouldn't need to do that. But such is the state of the evangelical church today in my opinion, that we can't afford to assume that everyone listening to us right now understands what you and I mean by the term the world. So to add some clarity to what, mean, what we mean by that phrase, I want to turn again to J.C. Ryle, who provides us with a very clear, a very objective, and most importantly, a very biblical definition of what we mean by the term the world. Ryle says this, quote, when I speak of the world, I mean those people who think only or chiefly of this world's things and neglect the world to come. The people who are always thinking more of earth than of heaven, more of time than of eternity, more of the body than of the soul, more of pleasing man than pleasing God. It is of them and their ways, habits, customs, opinions, practices, tastes, aims, 
spirit, and tone that I'm speaking of when I speak of the world. That is the world from which Paul tells us to come out and be separate, unquote. That was J.C. Ryle. So it's that apostolic command that, that, that Ryle is alluding to there that's found in 2 Corinthians 6.17 to come out and be separate that essentially sums up what we're talking about today, Omaha, in this episode of the Just Taking Podcast. But our problem in the church seems to be that we love this world too much to actually want to do that, to actually want to come out from the world and be separate from it, because the truth is doing that will cost us something. And far too many of us don't want to pay that price, even in light of what Christ has done for us on the cross, because we love this world too much to actually let go of it. Now, I want to urge our listeners to think about what I just said there. As I quote Charles Hazen Spurgeon from his sermon titled Perfection in Faith, which he preached on January 2nd, 1859, and he said this, quote, Christians are not to be used for anything but for God. They are a set apart people. They are vessels of mercy. They are not for the devil's use, nor for their own use, not for the world's use, but for their master's use. Unquote. Thoughts, Omaha? No, that's that's a phenomenal section that we just walked through. I think that I think the the worldly distinction is needed, especially for believers. As you were talking, I was reminded of Acts chapter twenty, uh, where Paul pretty much gives the same kind of exhortation. He he starts out by explaining what his example was as a believer who was separate from the world. And then he goes on to uh, admonish them and explain to them that, that, uh, that, that they need to be careful and mindful not to attach themselves to the world. So you have Paul's example uh, in Acts 20, followed by Paul's warning. Uh, and then finally, Paul's encouragement. Let me walk you through that. If you have your Bibles, if you don't, and you're listening to Just Thinking, you, 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 you need to stop now and grab your Bible. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have you look at Acts chapter 20. Uh, in verse 22. And in that section, what we have is as Paul is about to leave the elders uh, who are, are are there from Ephesus, he, he's getting ready to leave them. He knows he's about to depart. And what he runs through is he runs through what they've what they've experienced by way of his example. And his example is what it looks like to be separate from the world. Verse 22 mm-hmm. says this, and now compelled by the Spirit, Paul says, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in town after town, the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions await me. But I consider my life of no value to me, if only I may finish my course and complete the ministry I have received from the Lord, the ministry of testifying of the good news of God's grace." Now I know that none, uh, none, of, none of you among whom I have preached the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole will of God. So mm-hmm. in, in that section of Scripture, what we have is Paul's example of how he's lived a life separate from the world. And for a believer in Christ, what that looks like is he's not concerned about the chains and afflictions that await him. He's not concerned about the warnings that that precede him, that even that the Holy Spirit warns him that these things are going to happen. His focus is on finishing the course and completing the ministry given to him 
by God. Mm-hmm. Verse 28 through 31, he then presents a warning, very similar to the warning, bro, that you and I have been uh, expressing over the course of, of this podcast, that, that we who are a part of the church uh, or, or claim to be professed believers in Christ should not be connected to the world. We should be separate from the world. Paul offers the same warning in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 31. He says, keep watch over yourselves and the entire flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, mm-hmm. be shepherds of the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will rise up and distort the truth to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be alert and remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. In addition to to Paul's example, uh, by way of saying this is what a life looks like separate from, you know, separate from the world. Mm-hmm. He then goes into a warning, uh, telling them, man, if they're not careful, if they don't monitor, if they don't, if they don't examine their lives and hold fast to what God has delivered, they're, they're going to see things happen where, where ravenous wolves will come in to devour the flock and even them themselves, they, that they're going to be the ones who, who even share truths in an effort to draw away disciples. Man, how, I, I, I pause only to examine that, what Paul said in that time to what we're dealing with today. I mean, mm-hmm. everywhere we turn, we see so-called believers in Christ, so-called followers of the gospel, so-called pastors in churches, reflecting what Paul, the warning that Paul gives to the, to the elders of the church of Ephesus. Finally, let me just give you this example by way of encouragement. Scripture, scripture provides us with encouragement from Paul as well here in Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. He says, he writes, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. Mm. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and have received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the peace of God will be with you. As to the separateness, Paul writes about that in his life. As to the warning, Paul writes about that and warning the, the, the elders at Ephesus. And we even see in Scripture the encouragement of what we are to do as believers. We are to think about the things that will, will grant us peace uh, in the here and now and definitely in the thereafter. We could go, we could go through Old Testament, mm-hmm. Mosaic mm-hmm. Covenant. We could go through, I mean, we could go through mm-hmm. a ton of Scripture and just show this same pattern, this pattern of live a life separate, and, mm-hmm. and a warning about how we're not to conduct mm-hmm. ourselves, followed by the encouragement of how we as believers should handle our lives, man. That's 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 what I wanted to deliver in that section. You know, that's great stuff, bro. You, you know, Omaha, when we begin to think seriously uh, about the church culture distinction, right, there are many questions that come to mind, not the least of which is this. Why are you a Christian to begin with? <laughs> right, right, right. <clears throat> Why are you a Christian to begin with? Now, what I mean by that is, is notwithstanding the sovereignty of God and bringing a person to faith in Christ, we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, and Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. Notwithstanding God's sovereignty, the question I'm asking is, why do you profess to be a Christian at all? What is your reason? 
What is your reason for identifying as a follower of Jesus Christ? And I pose those questions, and there are many more that I could pose in addition to those, but I pose those questions in light of a verse of Scripture that I believe far too many Christians today take lightly. I'm speaking of the passage found in Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16, known in biblical theology as the similitudes of Jesus, okay? The similitudes of Jesus. I'm going to read Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16 from the non-Armenian Standard Bible Translation. (laughs) Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. You are the, this is Jesus speaking. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Again, that was Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. And as I ponder that passage, Omaha, there are two things that come to mind with respect to the church culture, church culture distinction that we've been discussing so far. Number one, I find it interesting that Jesus said, we are the salt of the earth, not the sugar of the earth. Now, <laughs> right. Whoa, 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 right. whoa, whoa. You got, you got, you got, you got to unpack that, man. That's another level, a, right? Yeah. That's, a, that's, that's a ham and B right there. That's a ham and B right there. I'm about to unpack that right now, my brother. Okay. So two <laughs> questions after reading Matthew five, verses 13 through 16 and considering what Jesus says there, there are two questions that come to mind. Number one, not questions, but two, uh, two observations that come to mind. Mm-hmm. Number one, mm-hmm. I found it interesting that Jesus said we are the salt of the earth, not the sugar of the earth. Now, that's good stuff right there. That's good stuff. I, I say that, Omaha, in light of the fact that there is a lot of talk within evangelicalism today under the guise of unity mm-hmm. that the church should be more sweet and less salty for fear that the world will not be attracted to the church as if the world is supposed to find the church attractive so as to be drawn to it in the first place. Now, Consider that against the, and, and let me, let me just pause right here, man. I mean, this is, this is my show. I can pause when I want. So let me pause, right? I got to go back to something you were talking about earlier in your, uh, in your earlier commentary. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and I can't, you know, we, we, we were talking earlier about the functioning, functioning universalist, uh, mm-hmm. uh, evangelical, uh, universalism, mm-hmm. um, uh, See, see those kind of people who don't want the people who want us to be more sugary and less salty. Those are people that I that I call gracists. <laughs> right, 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 right. Those, those people are, are gracists. So, right, you, you've you, got you, you didn't mean you didn't mean, you weren't trying to say racist. You were saying gracist. Right? No, this is gracist. With that's right. G, if I need to spell it out, G. let me just spell this out. If spell they don't get it phone- if they don't get it phonetically, let me spell it out. G. R A C E hyphen I S T S. That's it. Gracious. Right. See, th- there are people within the church who want us to be more sugary mm-hmm. and less salty. They don't want us to, they, they don't consider what Jesus himself is saying here in Matthew 5. But that goes back to that moralism that we were talking about earlier. I forget what episode it was. It may have been the unity episode, the episode we did on biblical theology of unity, where we talked about the tone police, right? Yes. Yes. So we got a bunch of tone police in the church 
where within their moral framework, you have to say everything, every syllable that you say as it relates to the gospel, sharing the gospel with someone, you have to say it in such a way that they have to approve the tone you use. They have Mm -hmm. to approve that. Right. They have to be approving of the tone you use. So they want mm-hmm. you. If you don't come, if you don't come across as sugary as they would like, you you pretty much sinned. No, Not abs- against Christ, absolutely. you sinned against them. Uh, then is it, I, I I witnessed that time and time again, man. Being being on the street corner evangelizing, I could be as syrup sweet as possible, passing out uh, gospel tracts, but sharing very clearly the biblical gospel. And the folks that will be the angriest are not the sinners. Right. They are so oh, man. called Come believers, on. right? On, who bro. will stop? Who will? While I'm on a street corner, stop their car, get out of the car, come to me and give me an earful, acting yes. all kinds of non-Christian yes. as they do, claiming they profess Christ and claiming that I'm doing it wrong. And then when you ask them, well, how are you doing it? it you know that part's irrelevant. The, the reality is most of them are not doing it, but they sure they sure they, they, they sure as well don't want you out there proclaiming anything that looks salty to a culture that prefers right. sugar. Right. You're exactly right. And we see it on social media as well. Right. I don't know how many times I've said, I, all I've done, bro, is declare what the gospel says. I've declared what Jesus himself said. Somebody will get a response. will respond to Well, do you really think that was loving? Right. Do you really think that represented Christ? Well, yeah. Yeah. I, matter of fact, yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. <laughs> I do think that matter of fact, block, <laughs> block, <laughs> Mute. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know? Right. So yeah, yep. so yeah, so we need to dig into this. So yeah, so so again, I do find it interesting that Jesus said we are the salt of the earth, not not the sugar of the of, of the earth. But there's a lot of talk within evangelicalism today under the guise of unity that the church needs to be more sweet. Because you you know, if you're not nicer, if you're not kinder, if, but see they've they've what they've done, they've imparted their paradigm of of uh, uh, a paradigm of tone equals truth. See, they've imparted that paradigm over to you. See, they're the New Jerusalem Council that we read about in Acts. They, they want you to do what they're not even willing to do themselves. Right. You see, but they talk as if the world is supposed to, as if the, as, as if the world is supposed to be attracted to the church, but it's not. And I'm going to dig into that because I was supposed to consider that against the backdrop of what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Paul says, but a natural man, that is an unregenerate person, namely the world, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. He cannot understand them. So the, the, the very idea that the church has the capacity to, to attract the world is antithetical to what scripture says. The unregenerate does not accept the things of the spiritual God of spirit of God, because he cannot, he cannot accept them. So you have a dichotomy there in first Corinthians two fourteen. the natural versus the spiritual. The natural is holy is holy. Meaning W H O L L Y. The natural is holy incapable of comprehending the spiritual. Now, notwithstanding the practical and tangible benefits of salt, particularly with respect to his capacity to preserve and to season, notice that Jesus emphasized the primary characteristic of salt in terms of its taste. 
Jesus said, if the salt becomes tasteless. Now, why the emphasis by Christ on salt, on our salt becoming tasteless? Well, Jesus emphasized our salt becoming tasteless because its tastelessness is evidence that it is no longer useful for anything. Tasteless salt cannot heal. Tasteless salt cannot preserve. Tasteless salt cannot season. In other words, what Jesus is saying to us is that salt that is tasteless is utterly worthless and useful, useless rather, as far as our being effective witnesses in the world about Jesus Christ and about the truth of his gospel. Absolutely. So, so that was number one. I found it interesting that Jesus says we are the salt of the earth, not the sugar of the earth. The second That's thing huge. that I found interesting, the second thing about Jesus's words in Matthew five is that he uses a metaphor of light and that our light is to not be hidden, but it's to be exposed in such a way as to give light to all who are in the house. Now, light that is hidden is still light, but it is light that is of no benefit to anyone. But see, that's what the culture has for centuries been enticing the church to become. The culture has been enticing the church to become a dull, vapid, muffled entity that doesn't shine its light so brightly as to be offensive to anyone, which ultimately is of no spiritual benefit to anyone, whether they are lost or saved, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Dr. Joel Beakey, Dr. Joel Beakey, in an article titled Salt and Light, Subtitled Practical Application for Today puts it this way. Please listen closely to these words from Dr. Joel Beakey. Quote, great pressures are exerted by the world to entice, cow, or coerce us into a situation of compromise with the man-centered values and ways and ends of the world. Our power to influence the world for good lies in our resolve to be faithful to our God and our Savior at all costs. We must fear God, not men. We must obey God and not men. We must be willing to be hated of all men for Christ's sake. Nor can we bring the light of God's word to bear on the life of the world if we retreat into a safe place of our own where we hide from the world and preach only to ourselves. The church is not to be a monastic cloister or an underground bunker. Whether we like it or not, Christ has set his city on a hill to be seen of all men. He bids us lift up the gospel as a candle put on a candlestick to give light to all the world. We cannot fulfill our mission if we hide ourselves away and talk only to ourselves, unquote. That was Dr. Joel Beakey. You see, Omaha. The world has no problem tolerating a moralistic church or for that matter, moralistic Christians. The world will open wide its arms to a church that is willing to unite with it in helping defeat the homeless or to fight for social justice. You see, all that is the church being sugar as far as the world is concerned. But what the world absolutely will not tolerate is a church that is committed to biblically being salt and light. A church that is willing to expose the world for what it truly is in light of the biblical gospel, which, like salt, often stings and burns, but in the end proves to be precisely the curative, proves to be precisely the therapeutic that the world needs in order to deal with the spiritual malady that plagues it in the first place. And that malady is sin in the human heart. We see that in Mark chapter 7, verses 17 through 23. As Christians, we should never confuse being moral with being regenerate. 
Let me repeat that. As Christians, we should never confuse being moral with being regenerate. We're commanded in Matthew 3, 8 to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Good works done apart from, pre, pre, uh, apart from repentance from sin is merely tasteless salt as far as Christ is concerned. As John MacArthur writes in his book, Christ Called to Reform the Church, quote, morality damns just like immorality, unquote. <laughs> now, if you want to put something on a T-shirt, put that on there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you want to put that on That's a bumper good. sticker? Put that on there. MacArthur says morality damns just like immorality. And if you look at every other for lack of a better word, every other religion on the planet. Only Christianity is not a religion of morality. And what I mean by that is only Christianity is not a religion whose soteriology is rooted on man-centered morality. So in other words, you can't say as a Christian that you're in the world, but not of the world when your life objectively gives evidence that it mirrors the world and that it is consistently saltless and lightless. Listen, a saltless, lightless Christian is of absolutely no use to Christ or to his church. As a great Presbyterian theologian, J. Gresham Machen writes in his classic book, Christianity and Liberalism, quote, the Christian life, though it begins by a momentary act of God is continued by a process. In other words, to use theological language, justification and regeneration are followed by sanctification. In principle, Machen says, the Christian is already free from the present evil world, but in practice, freedom must still be attained. Thus, the Christian life is not a life of idleness, but a battle, unquote. Thoughts, Omaha? Yeah, man, good, good section. When you mentioned saltiness, the saltiness of salting, you compare that to salt that is tasteless and good for nothing. I, I had an immediate thought that came to mind, <clears throat> and the thought was this, that spiritual COVID has actually infected cultural Christianity. It's tasteless salt that has lost its saltiness. Let me say that again. Spiritual COVID has infected uh-huh. cultural Christianity, and it's tasteless salt has lost its saltiness. It, it, Bro. It, when, when, you, when you think of one of the impacts of COVID, <clears throat> for many it's that those infected lose their sense of taste and smell. This is precisely what happened to me when I had COVID. I lost my sense of taste and smell. Uh, and so the, the funny thing was that, that I knew that I had to eat, but everything that I had tasted, the, everything that I had eaten had tasted the same. And so there was no enjoyment in it. I'd further say that cultural Christianity is actually on a ventilator in the hospital, and, and it will never return. In fact, cultural Christianity is, is on the death watch. Uh, in, a pla- in place of cultural Christianity, however, there is a new religion. A new religion has emerged to replace cultural Christianity. And, and the, the new religion has no problem proclaiming what they believe and demanding others to obey. This new religion has a new church, right? The, the, this new religion's new church is the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Uh, this, this new religion... Ha- <laughs> this new... this. Absolutely, man. This new religion has a new church called the Centers for Disease Control, CDC, uh, the, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. This new religion has new leaders like the prophet Fauci. 
This new religion has has saints, their own their own saints that they that they that they pay homage to and and put murals up on, like Saint George Floyd of Minneapolis or Saint Breonna Taylor of of Pittsburgh. This new religion has has holy days like January 6th. They even have special services like drag queen reading hour at the local library near you. This new religion has particular pronouns like Z, Zim, Zer, Zers, Zerself, Hisself, Tearself. If you think that this new religion is not to be taken seriously, their positions are continually being codified into law so that those who violate the new religion can appropriately be punished and removed from society. Rest assured, dear Christian, those who are a part of the new religion are much more serious about what they believe than what most self-professed Christians claim they believe. Believers in this new religion have a zeal for their faith that many Christians have abandoned in order to be more like the culture. The handful of Christians, real Christians, who are actually taking a stand against the new religion are being fired from jobs, removed from social media, and attacked by those in power. Early in that section, you quoted from Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16, where you talked about being salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, uh, it it will no longer be restored. If we look at that section of Scripture, man, and go backwards just a couple of verses to Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12, it says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For uh, your, your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And this is this is powerful. All of this sets up the very section that you talked about regarding salt and light. Again, it goes back to the preconditions for our need to be salt and light, that we're going to endure hardship and persecution. This new religion that I talked about earlier has no problem demanding and commanding what they believe we should believe. At the same time, modern day Christians have abandoned that idea for the sake of love, for the sake of the, 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 the you know, being relevant uh, to culture, have abandoned that same strength and power. And what we see as a, as a result is an impotent faith. We have to abandon that, go back to scripture and understand what it means to be a true follower of Jesus Christ. Man, listen, I know we've been behind the mic for a minute now, but I've got to get this PSA in, this public service announcement, uh, pretty much for our own protection here at Omaha. If, if, if you're listening to this episode without protective gloves on, you need to go put a pair on. Because this episode is hot. This episode is hot, if I do say so myself, and I don't normally say that. But this episode is flat out fire. So to put, press pause right now. Because we got more heat to come, oh, go yes. put some gloves on, then come back and press play. Because we're not done. Yo, Omaha, that was fantastic, bro. Fantastic exposition and commentary there, man. You know, I think it's interesting, uh, Omaha, that, that you and I are having to, to have this discussion at all about the, the whole church culture distinction, the church world distinction. It's interesting that we're having to talk about this at all, especially when we consider that Christians by definition 
people who live in this world with the reality that there's another world to come. Rao said, more of the things of earth than of heaven and more of time than eternity, more of the body than of the soul, more of pleasing man than pleasing God. Why are we drawn to those things when we know with certainty that we will one day leave this world behind? Mm-hmm. I mean, I ask that question because we evangelicals today seem to be confused about something. We seem to think that our existence as Christians in this world means that we have a kind of dual citizenship, <laughs> that we are citizens of this world and also of the world to come. But I want to put to our listeners today that according to scripture, that's not true. I say that in light of such, uh, I say that in light of such texts as 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, where the apostle Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Conversely, the Apostle Paul declares unambiguously in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there's also Hebrews chapter 13, verses 13 and 14. So let us go out, let's go, let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here, that is in this world, we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. So, no, Christians are not dual citizens. Mm-hmm. We are aliens and strangers and pilgrims in this world, and our actual citizenship is in heaven. Consequently, we should live and act accordingly. The British theologian J.I. Packer put it this way in his classic book titled Knowing God. Packer said, quote, you know what kind of life it is that Christ calls you as his disciple to live. His own example and teaching in the Gospels to look no further in the book of God than that. Make it upon abundantly clear. You are called to go through this world as a pilgrim, a mere temporary resident, traveling light and willing, as Christ directs, to do what the rich young ruler refused to do, give up material wealth and the security it provides and live in a way that involves you in poverty and loss of possessions. Again, let me just pause here. Packer said as to, to do that as Christ directs, okay? He's not uh, putting forth a dogmatic uh, uh, command or or, or, or uh, principle. He says, as Christ directs, we are to be able to, we are to prepare ourselves to do what the rich young ruler refused to do. That is to give up material wealth on the security it provides and live in a way that involves you in poverty and loss of possessions. This is really what you were talking about earlier, Omaha, about how, what it may ultimately come to with respect to the culture as it continues to embrace a very paganistic, uh, worldview, which obviously pits it by definition against the gospel and against the church to, to such an extent that, you know, many uh, believers are already losing jobs and it may get yes. worse. Yes. Uh, who, who, who can say that it won't cost you your life, yes. your physical life at some point? Uh, but Packer continues. He says, having your treasure in heaven, you are not to budget for treasure on earth. I want to repeat that. That is huge. That is huge. Having your treasure in heaven, not to budget for treasure on earth, nor for a high standard of living. 
you may well be required to forego both. You are called to follow Christ carrying your own cross, unquote. That was J.I. Packer from his book, Knowing God. So again, contrary to popular opinion, Christians are not dual citizens. We are citizens only of heaven. We are aliens here. Our problem, however, is that far too many professing Christians today believe you can wait until you get to heaven to start living like a citizen of heaven. Wow. That's That's our problem here. Yes, that's good. We got far too many professing believers who think you can just wait till you get to heaven to start Mm -hmm. living as if you're a citizen of heaven. But what does Mm -hmm. Apostle Paul exhort us to do in Colossians chapter three, verses one through three? Paul says, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, in other words, if you truly have been saved, if you truly have been regenerated, if, if in fact the Holy Spirit truly does live in you, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul says in Colossians 3, keep seeking. He didn't say start seeking. Right. He said keep seeking. The the phrases keep seeking and set your mind are present tense verb phrases. They're not future tense verb phrases. My point is that the tense of those phrases assumes that such a spiritual posture exists in the believer, that he or she is living in such a way as to already be seeking the things above over the things that are of this world and are already setting and fixing their mind on the things of God. So here again, we're confronted with a question that we must deal with, Omaha. And that question is this, can you and I right now today truthfully and honestly say before God, Knowing that God knows our hearts, that's Psalm yes. 44, verses 20 and 21. Can we can we honestly say that we are consistently and persistently seeking the things that are above and not the things that are on the earth? Mm. Now we'll go further. I will go further, Omaha, and suggest that that is where the church culture distinction is established, for better that's or worse. Good. Yeah, that's good. The church culture distinguished the, the church culture distinction is established. At the point where we as professing believers are committed or not to seeking the things of heaven rather than the things of the world. Followers of Jesus Christ are not to love the world, and yet we do. That's 1 John 2.15. We are not to love our sin, and yet we do. That's John 3.19. We are not to chase after worldly acclaim and acceptance, and yet we do. That's Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, and yet too many of them don't. Mm. That's Ephesians 5.25. Wives are to respect their husbands, and yet too many of them do not. That's Ephesians 5.33. Children are to obey their parents in the Lord, and yet many of them don't. That's Ephesians 6.1. Now, I could go on with other examples, but I think our listeners get the point. How can we, how can we as professing believers in Jesus Christ, distinguish ourselves from the culture when, by demonstrating the exact kind of behavior that is clearly antithetical to the gospel, we render ourselves completely indistinguishable from the culture. Mm-hmm. Now, I asked that question, Omaha. I asked that question in light of these words from the book titled The City of God by St. Augustine. In chapter 14 of that book titled Of the Nature of the Two Cities, subtitled The Earthly and the Heavenly, Augustine writes this, Quote, 
Two cities have been formed by two loves, the earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God, the heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. Let me repeat that. Augustine writes that two cities have been formed by two loves, the earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God, the heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. Augustine continues, the former in a word glorifies in itself, the latter in the Lord. For the one seeks glory from men, but the greatest glory of the other is God, Mm. the witness of conscience. The one lifts up its head in its own glory. The other says to its God, thou art my glory and the lifter up of mine head. In the one, the princes and the nations it subdues are ruled by the love of ruling. In the other, the princes and the subjects serve one another in love, the latter obeying while the former take thought for all. The one delights in its own strength, represented in the persons of its rulers. The other says to its God, I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. And therefore, the wise men of the one city, living according to man, have sought for profit to their own bodies and souls, or both. And those who have not known God, quote, glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, mm-hmm. and their foolish heart was darkened, professing themselves to be wise, unquote. That is, glorifying in their own wisdom and being possessed by pride, quote, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and to four-footed beasts and creeping things, unquote. Augustine continues, for they were either leaders or followers of the people in adoring images and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who was blessed forever. But in the other city, that is the city of God, there is no human wisdom, but only godliness which offers due worship to the true God and looks for its reward in the society of the saints, of holy angels, as well as holy men, that God may be all in all, unquote. Again, that was Augustine from his book, The City of God. Thoughts, Omaha? Yeah, I like what you said about about setting our minds on things above. And, And one of the ways I know for me that uh, that I try to do this. I try to try to exemplify this in, in my own life is, is through prayer, you know, taking time out through prayer and really focusing on that. It's, it's when, it's when, when we're tempted to get caught up in what the world thinks, it becomes crucial, I think, for us to, to set ourselves away, a, a to find a time away and to really get with the Lord. I do that. And as I know you, you do as well and, and quiet time and, and scripture reading, uh, but but in addition to that, I think one of the spiritual disciplines that are incredibly important for that is 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 the spiritual discipline of prayer. Uh, one of the Puritan prayers that I find helpful from uh, from is, is called from the deep or it's called the deep. It's from the Valley of Vision. Uh, I, I want to read you a section from it. I think is incredibly helpful and it, and it kind of amplifies what you just laid out in Augustine's quote. Uh, the prayer, the, the Puritan prayer from the it's called the deep from the Valley of Vision. It reads this way. Lord Jesus, give me a deeper repentance, a horror of sin, a dread of its approach. Help me chastely to flee it 
and and jealously to resolve that my heart shall be yours alone. Give me a deeper trust that I may lose myself to find myself in you, the ground of my rest, the spring of my being. Give me deeper knowledge of yourself as Savior, Master, Lord, and King. Give me deeper power in private prayer, more sweetness in your word, more steadfast grip on its truth. Give me deeper holiness in speech, thought, action, and let me not seek moral virtue apart from you. That's important. Plow plow deep in me, great Lord, heavenly husbandman, that my being may may be a tilled field, the roots of grace spreading far and wide until you alone are seen in me, your beauty golden like summer harvest, your fruitfulness as autumn plenty. I have no master but you, no law but your will, no delight but yourself, no wealth but that you give, no good but that you bless, no peace but that you bestow. I am nothing but that you make me. I have nothing but that I receive from you. I can be nothing but that grace adorns me. Quarry me deep, dear Lord, and then fill me to overflowing with living water. Amen. Now, I, I go back to the, the richness of those kinds of prayers uh, because I think in our current culture, if, we're, if, 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 if we spend most of our time if, you know, as Christians listening to weak preaching, listening to uh, what culture has to say and the idea that we need to be more and more like the world in order to win the world, we've absolutely lost it. What I find in Puritan prayers is the anchoring of the soul goes back to a clear understanding that our only source of hope, of wisdom, of of anything beneficial is rests itself in God. And so it's important for us to recognize and to realize that. I like when you said, contrary to popular opinion, you said Christians are not dual citizens. I'd argue that this Puritan understands where his citizenship lies. And as a result, he wants to be more reflective of of that city, uh, the, the city of God, more than anything else. And so I think those kinds of things are important. I find that most people are, are so bent on saving culture through political means that the transformative power of the gospel and of gospel proclamation and prayer really is neglected as a result. I'll turn things back over to you. Yeah, that was, uh, thank you for that Omaha. Great commentary, bro. You know, the, um, the Reverend Archibald Alexander Hodge, who we know as A.A. Hodge, mm-hmm. Archibald Alexander Hodge in his inaugural address upon being installed as associate professor of dogmatic and polemic theology at Princeton Theological Seminary on November 8th, 1877, said this, quote, It is the grand distinction of Christianity that it is ethical and not magical in all its processes and spirit. It rests on facts. Mm-hmm. It moves in the sphere of personal relations. It is a spiritual power acting through the instrumentality of truth addressed to the reason and made effectual upon the soul by the power of the divine spirit. And the truth, through the medium of knowledge spiritualized, acts on the emotions and will, and transforms character and governs life, unquote. 
That was Reverend A.A. A. Hodge from back on November 8th, 1877. A.A. A. Hodge said that the truth of the gospel made effectual upon the soul by the power of the Holy Spirit, quote, transforms character and governs life. Did you get that, listeners? The gospel, Hodge said, transforms our character and governs our life. And what Hodge really is expressing in those words is precisely what we see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 through 13, where Paul writes this. He says, for you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. I love that phrase, the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. That was the Apostle Paul from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 through 13. Paul exhorted, encouraged, and employed the believers at Thessalonica to walk. In other words, to live in a manner, which is to say a consistent pattern of life, as to be worthy of the God who called them into his own kingdom and glory. Now, it's important to note here that when the Apostle Paul talks about our being worthy of the God who called us into his kingdom and glory, his own kingdom and glory, he's not preaching a works righteousness soteriology there. OK, in fact, the Greek word worthy in First Thessalonians 2.12 is the word axios, axios, A-X-I-O-X, A-X rather, I-O-S, which literally translates to mean to walk in a manner that is suitable suitable to or worthily of the God who has called you. So exegetically speaking, it's the same exhortation as what Paul gives us in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, which reads, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy. That's axios. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And what does that calling look like? Verse two, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another and love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit, Paul said, the unity of the spirit, not the unity of the world in the bond of peace. Conversely, we see that same exhortation in Philippians chapter one, verse 27, where Paul exhorts us to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy or suitable to or worthily of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So no, Paul is not preaching works righteousness when he says we are to walk worthy. What Paul is saying is that you and I are to have such a heart attitude of gratefulness 
such a heart attitude of thankfulness to God for having called us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his marvelous light. That's first Peter two, nine motivated purely out of love for what God has done for us. That's Romans five, six for at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Okay. So in other words, as professing believers, what Paul is talking about is that we're to walk the talk. We're to walk the talk. That the gospel of Jesus Christ, as A.A. Hodge put it so well, transforms our character and governs our life. Means that there should be no area or aspect of our existence in this world over which the word of God does not have authority and influence. None whatsoever. That's Luke 6.46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? So in other words, the person who professes to be a Christian does not like does, does, does not live a life of asterisks, as I put it. The professing Christian does not live a life of asterisks, meaning that there are certain areas of his or her life that are governed by the authority of the word of God, but other areas that, is, that are not. When a person by the grace of God becomes regenerate, that's Ephesians 2, 8, 9. When a person by the grace of God, solely by the grace of God, becomes regenerate, he or she can then legitimately say of himself or herself that they are now in the world, but not of it. But until and unless that happens, that person is both in the world and of the world. But see, being regenerate is only part of it, because when a person is saved, they are also then obligated to live out that reality in the world so that the world so that the world recognizes them as being distinct from the world. As a result of having been born again in Christ, it's that salt light metaphor again. Okay, but here's where the cost of reflecting that distinction comes in, because to whatever extent or degree the world does recognize that salt and light in you, such recognition is never to be confused with the world accepting you. In fact, you should expect exactly the opposite response. As John Charles Riley, J.C. Ryle, rather, J.C. Ryle, John Charles Ryle says soberingly in his classic book, Holiness, please listen closely to this. Ralph says in his book, Holiness, quote, it may be you are struggling hard for the rewards of this world. Perhaps you are straining every nerve to obtain money or place or power or pleasure. If that be your case, take care, for you are sowing a crop of bitter disappointment. Unless you mind what you are about, your latter end will be to lie down in sorrow, unquote. And you know, Omaha, as I reflect on Ra's warning, that if we're not careful how we live in this world, our latter end will be to lie down in sorrow. I want to mention here that I've long been interested in the dying words of famous people. Mm-hmm. I've long had an interest in that. Mm-hmm. The, the dying words of famous people. And to put J.C. Ra's wisdom in the greater context, as, particularly as it relates to his warning about lying down in sorrow when the end comes, I want to share with our listeners what are purported to be the last dying words of certain famous individuals throughout history. Mm-hmm. Queen Elizabeth I, who died on March 24, 1603, her dying words were, quote, all my possessions for a moment of time, unquote. Actress Joan Crawford, who died on May 10, 1977, said this to her housekeeper, who had begun to pray aloud for her, quote, damn it. Don't you dare ask God to help me. Wow. Wow. Writer Jane Austen, who died on July 18, 1817, when asked by her sister Cassandra if there was anything she wanted, said this, quote, 
nothing but death, unquote. Queen Louise of Prussia, who died July 19, 1810, said, quote, I am a queen, but I have not the power to move my arms, unquote. Film producer Louis B. Mayer of MGM, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, who died on October 29, 1957, said this, quote, nothing matters, nothing matters, unquote. Lady Nancy Astor of the Coffee Fortune, who died on May 2nd, 1964, said this when she awoke briefly during her last illness and found all her family around her bedside. She said, quote, am I dying or is this my birthday? Unquote. Mm. Winston Churchill, who died on January 24th, 1965, said this before slipping into a coma and dying nine days later, quote, I'm bored with it all, unquote. Composer Ludwig von Beethoven, who died March 26, 1827, said, friends applaud, the comedy is finished, unquote. Wow. Writer Thomas Hobbes, who died December 4th, 1679, said, quote, I am about to take my last voyage, a great leap into the dark, unquote. And lastly, the German philosopher Karl Marx, who died on March 4th, 1883, said this to his housekeeper, who urged him to tell her his last words so she could write them down for posterity. Quote, go on, get out. Last words are for fools who haven't said enough. Unquote. Thoughts, Omaha? Man, that section alone was worth this way to go right there. <laughs> as you began to unpack that, man, I, I immediately, as you talked about covering the, the last words of dying men, I know you've you've told me a, a while back that that was something that you 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 enjoyed kind of learning about and, and finding out about and, and studying and researching. I immediately <clears throat> thought of the last words of of two men, and that that is the Apostle Paul and Christ Jesus Himself. And uh, in, in, in contrast to some of those, some of the, the, the things that you, you shared, I immediately went and pulled up. What did Paul say toward the end as, as he was, you know, wrapping up his life, recognizing that the end would come? We actually have those, those words that, that he wrote to, uh, to Timothy uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 and following, as he knew that the, that the end of his time was drawing near. He says this in verse six, he says, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. Hence, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. First of all, I think what Paul shares in that section of scripture is powerful, and there's there's much for us to examine again through through, the, through, through you know the example of Paul's life as as he exhorts us to to follow him as he follows Christ. But he's fought the good fight. What have we been talking about for the for the last you know however long we've been on this particular podcast? We've been talking. To, We've been talking about fighting the good fight of, of standing firm, of re- recognizing that while we're in the world, we're not of the world. And with that comes a, a, a persecution. It's an inevitable part of what we endure as believers. 
He has finished the race, and more more importantly, he has kept the faith. Uh, we, we'll all finish the race. The question is, how will we? How will we finish that race? Absolutely. Uh, and, and Paul responds by saying he's kept the faith. I, I love what he says. He knows based upon Scripture's instruction that there's a crown of righteousness laid up for him, uh, that, that he will appear before the righteous judge, and that the righteous judge will award him on that day, that Christ will award him on that day that which is due him. Uh, but I think what he says thereafter is something that we should all be encouraged by, uh, that he will not only award Paul, but he will also award the, the, the crown of righteousness to all who have loved his appearing. So all of us who are believers in Christ, who have loved the appearing of Christ, have looked for, have longed for, Christ's appearing will also be awarded on that day. So we don't have to go into this life, into the next, fearful or afraid or or concerned. I mean, we've got we've got a book all about about sinful fear and anxiety called "Why Are You Afraid?" A lot of it is because we desire to live in this world and we desire for this world to be set up in a way that 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 benefits us. When the reality is, this world will never be of benefit to us. We we long for the for that which is to come, the return of our King. Finally, I, I thought about the the. The words of Christ uh, as he was on the cross, he had this to say in Luke twenty three thirty four. Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. Uh, Luke twenty three forty three. He says, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. And this is the words that he expressed toward another dying man next to him, the, the, the criminal who was crucified next to him, who recognized he was the Christ and, 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 and indeed had faith in, 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 uh, in the work of Christ. Uh, Luke twenty three forty six. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Uh, and then in John in John nineteen verse twenty six, we have, uh, dear woman, here is your son. And that's where where the apostle John is is standing next to uh, to to, uh, to to Mary, uh, and he commends Mary to him. Uh, John chapter nineteen verse twenty eight. He says, I am thirsty, and he says this in an effort to fulfill prophecy. Psalm sixty nine verse twenty one, where where it says. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. So again, even as he's on the cross in his last moments, he's fulfilling that which is to be, uh, uh, that, that which was spoken about him. And finally, John nineteen thirty, he says, it is finished, and in an effort to fulfill the work that needed to be done on the cross. And it's in that that you and I, all those who are listening who have a relationship with Christ, that's, that's the, the, the nature of, of that which we should rejoice over. That, that is, the, that, that is the, the, the goal, right? To understand the message of the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel, the sacrifice of Christ on a cross, what he endured for our sake. And as a result, we no longer live for ourselves, but we have given our life to him, knowing that he has finished the work uh, on our behalf. That's all I've got for that section. Yeah, fantastic stuff again, uh, Omaha. Thanks for that, man. You know, I want to quote from uh, Reverend Aidan Wilson Tozer, A.W. Tozer, who lived from 1897 to 1963, from his book titled Culture, subtitled Living as Citizens of Heaven on Earth. What you just said, Omaha, just a fantastic segue to this quote that I want to read from Tozer's book on culture. Um, A.W. Tozer said this, quote, In the early days when Christianity exercised a dominant influence over American thinking, men conceived the world to be a battleground. Mm -hmm. Our fathers believed in sin and the devil and hell as constituting one force. 
and they believed in God and righteousness and heaven as the other. These were opposed to each other in the nature of them forever in deep, grave, irreconcilable hostility. Man, so our fathers held, had to choose sides. He could not be neutral. For him, it must be life or death, heaven or hell. And if he chose to come out on God's side, he could expect open war with God's enemies. How different today. Men think of the world not as a battleground, but as a playground. Mm -hmm. We are not here to fight. We are here to frolic. We are not in a foreign land. We are at home. We are not getting ready to live. We are already living. And the best we can do is rid ourselves of our inhibitions and our frustrations and live this life to the full. This, we believe, is a fair summary of the religious philosophy of modern man, openly professed by millions and tacitly held by more multiplied millions who live out that philosophy without having given verbal expression to it, unquote. That was A.W. Tozer from his book, Culture, Living as Citizens, on heaven, citizens of Heaven on Earth. Now, let me, let me digress here for a second. Tozer said that men think of the world not as a battleground, but as a playground, and that we are not here to fight, but we are here to frolic. We are not in a foreign land. We are at home. Omaha, in your last uh, uh, section of commentary, you alluded to our uh, forthcoming book, why are you afraid about dealing biblically with sinful fear and anxiety? Now, I'm not going to say this as generally applying to every professing believer out there who falls into that category of dealing with sinful fear and anxiety. But I think Tozer has said something here that is applicable to uh, much of the milieu that exists uh, with respect to uh, something you alluded to earlier uh, uh, as we continue to make our way through this sort, sort of COVID uh, reality. Uh, uh, Tozer said that many professing Christians see uh, their existence in the world uh, not, not as a foreign land, but being at home. And I think that's why that, that, that is the very reason why so many professing Christians who are afraid are afraid. That's why they're afraid because they've gotten so they, they've lost sight of the fact that they're in a foreign land. They've become so comfortable here that this world has become home to them. Right, right. And they see this place as home. Not, they don't see themselves as alien strangers and pilgrims. This place has become home to them. That's why they're so scared. That's a primary reason why they're so scared. I said this on Twitter a couple of weeks ago. I said that we have uh, uh, many in the church today who are so afraid to die that they're afraid to live. I hope that makes sense to a lot of people. Some of us are so afraid to die that we're afraid to live. We're afraid to die because we've forgotten that this world's not our this world is not our home. Right. But see, we say that though. Oh, it's, it's, it's like some some old fashioned hymn we that comes to mind. Yeah. Oh, this world is not my home. This world is not my home. Then right. until until you have to live that out. <laughs> yes. Oh, then, then your tune changes to, well, I don't want to lose my home. I don't want to lose my home. <laughs> but, that, yep. but, 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 but I followed up that tweet by saying that you cannot profess, you cannot confess and say that this world is not your home and then be afraid to give up the keys to the house. 
right? Metaphorically, what I'm saying there is, is, is something you alluded to earlier. You're going to suffer loss in this world. Yes. If you're truly a Christian, you're going to, not only are you going to suffer loss, you should expect to suffer loss. Yes. Yes. Scripture is clear. Scripture is clear. You, 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 uh, you, you exposited that earlier verse when you, you actually cited several verses to establish that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But many people listening to me right now, and I say this in the spirit of Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love, you're afraid. Because you've lost sight of the fact that you're a foreigner here. That this world is not your home. You're guilty of what Tozer has said. You think of this world as a playground, not a battleground. You think that you're here to frolic, not here to fight. You see this world as your home, not as a foreign land. You, 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 you see yourself as, as, as not someone who's getting ready to live. You're already living. Mm-hmm. As, as Joel Osteen said, you're living your best life now. Your, your Christianity has become so comfortable. That's why you're afraid. At the bottom line, at the root of it all, your, comfort, your comfortability is what you fear losing. That's what you fear losing. That's why you're afraid. That's why Tozer nailed it here. We're not in a foreign land. We're at home. We're chilling. We're chilling. What does everyone want to do, Omaha? Everyone's talking about, well, we just need to get back to normal. Right, when, right, when, right. When, when do we get back to normal? Right. And see, for the Christian, that's dangerous. That's da- I know what people mean when they say that. I know what they mean when they say that. But that is not a biblical paradigm through which you are to view what's happening now or what will happen in the future. You shouldn't view anything that happens in this world like that. N- normal for the Christian is, is a non sequitur. Normal for the Christian is heaven. That's normal for the Christian. That's where your home is. That's what you're citizens of. Normal for the Christian is 1 John 2, 15, that this world is passing away. Normal for the Christian is Colossians 3. You're seeking the things above. But I, th- I, just, I just had to say that, Omaha, because Tozer absolutely nailed it. Absolutely. I mean, he I nailed I, it right there. Absolutely. You're spot, you're spot on. I mean, that that's what what he said in that section sums up everything we've been discussing for the last hour and a half, two hours close to, right? Yeah, uh, it, it it really boils down to you having the clear understanding of of where your home is, and and the fear comes in when you're trying to hold on Bingo. to something that exactly that never that never belonged to you to begin with. Ne- never belonged to you anyway. What did Paul say? Paul said, "What do you have that you did not receive?" It, it, it's, it's all about perspective, bro. Uh, it goes all the way back to what we were talking about earlier when you said that we're weak in gospel presentation. But we're weak in gospel presentation because we're weak in gospel perceptivity. We don't perceive what the gospel is. We don't know what it is. We don't understand what it is. And sadly, what's worse is we have many professing Christians out there don't want to know what it is. They don't want to know what it is. Because if they really knew what the gospel was, that would absolutely upset their apple cart. It would turn their lives upside down. So I had to just get that out. Let me continue. Thomas Manton, who I've really come to appreciate as a Puritan who, uh, until a couple of years ago, I wasn't familiar with at all. But Thomas Manton was an English Puritan who lived from 1620 to 1677. You notice Omaha, I don't know if you realize this, because I know you read a ton of Puritan theology as well. But the Puritans did not live very long lives. 
No, they did uh, not. Many of them died before they were 60 years old. Uh, and, and Manton um, was one of those. He died when he was only 57 years old. But Manton wrote this, quote, You are never changed till the heart be changed. And the heart is never changed till the will and love be changed. Well, then, it is not enough to die to sin, but we must walk in newness of life. Both must be minded. Don't miss that, listeners. Manton says we must do both. It's not enough to just be saved, but you must walk in that newness of life. He says both must be minded. But we begin first at mortification and then proceed to the positive duties of a new life. Holiness, Manton says, consists not in a mere forbearance of a sensual life, but principally in living to God. The heart of it within is the love of God, its inclination towards him, delight in him, desire after him, care to please him, loathness to offend him, and the expression of it without, that is, externally, okay, showing that to the world, is the exercise of grace according to the direction of God's word. Yes, these two branches are not only seen at first, that is, when you initially come to faith in Christ, but every step of the new life is a dying to sin. Every step of the new life is a dying to sin and a rising. I love how Manton ended this. He says, every step of the new life is a dying to sin and a rising to newness of life, a retiring from the world to God, unquote. Thomas Manton said, fighting the good fight, fight of faith, living life to God, He described it as retiring from the world to God. I love that. Uh, In the book, the Heidelberg Catechism, subtitled Explained for the Humble and Sincere in 52 Sermons, the late Reverend G. Van Rienen, who died in 1946, said this, quote, The church is called holy, not not as if we are already above all defilement and shortcomings, but because it is separated from the world and because the principle of holiness is implanted in it by the new birth and because it is continually being sanctified and because it is called to holiness, be ye holy for I am holy. So Van Rienen is saying the church, namely us believers, we're not called holy as if we've already attained to some sort of sinless perfection. He says we're called holy because we're separated from the world. That's really what the word sanctification means. It means to be separate. Now, having read those three quotes from Tozer, from Manton, and then from Van Rienen, I have these questions, these three questions to pose to our listeners, Omaha. Number one, are you one of those, quote, multiplied millions, unquote, of professing Christians who, as A.W. Tozer said, see this world and the culture it promotes as a place to frolic or to fight. That's good. Now, I want to add here that when Tozer says fight, he's not speaking in terms of what you alluded to earlier, Omaha, political uh, activity, activism, or social right. activism, or even military activism. What Tozer is, talk, Tozer is talking about here is fighting the good fight of faith that the Apostle Paul exhorts us to engage in in 1 Timothy 6.12. You spoke about that earlier, Omaha. It's a fight for your sanctification. That's what Tozer is talking about. Yes. It's a yes. fight for your being separate from the world and the culture. And what does that fight look like? 
Well, it looks like a fight for sexual purity in your marriage. And yes, in your singleness as well. That's Hebrews 13, chapter four. I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 13, verse four and first Thessalonians four verses three and four. I want to repeat that. Let me say to you who are married, as well as those who are single, who who profess to be believers. Sexual sin, you, we, we talked about this in, in our episode, Omaha, on uh, pornography in the church. In that episode, we described, and we've all, we also have a, a separate episode on sexual sin in the church. Sexual sin is the silent killer. Sexual purity is, is a virus within the church today. And we, and we would be naive to not acknowledge that. We've got professing believers right now today listening to me, even those listening to me, who are practicing sexual fornication. They're practicing it. There may be some who are in, involved in adulterous relationships who are married, who are listening to me right now, and those who are single, who are practicing sexual immorality right now, practicing it. And you need to repent. The fight against, uh, 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 or rather shall I say, Seeing your existence in this world as a frolic or a fight looks like whether or not you repent of that sin and turn from it permanently. So when someone says, well, what is that? What does that kind of fight looks like? Looks look like. Well, one example is that it looks like a fight for sexual purity in your marriage and in your singleness. It looks like a fight to abstain from watching pornography and from sinfully keeping secrets from your spouse, perhaps about that secret OnlyFans account that no one knows about. That's Psalm 119, verse 9. It's a fight to tell the truth and to keep your promises even to your own hurt. That's Psalm 15, verse 4. It's a fight to raise godly children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Those are just a few examples of what fighting versus frolicking looks like for those of us who are in the world, but not of it. To again, quote J.C. Rowell. Go ahead, V. I've I've got to jump in here, man. That that was just fire. That was absolute fire. Um, One of the biggest things I think that keeps believers from being in the world and not of the world is the topic that you just raised. The subject that you just raised, the fight for sexual purity. Every everyone loves to go and, and watch the latest Daily Wire clip. They want to go see yeah. what's jumping off on Twitter. They want to see, you know, who's in the mix and, and who's 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 stirring the pot. Um, all the while recognizing that they probably aren't gonna say much. Uh, they they'd rather sit back and watch. Right. And part of the reason why they're afraid to say much is it's for the very issue that you just mm-hmm. raised mm-hmm. here mm-hmm. regarding the fact that, that we, we find this a place to frolic rather than to fight because we are engaged in sexual impurity, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, both in marriage and in singleness. Mm-hmm. And, and the fact that, we, that we're operating, that many are operating from a sexually impure standpoint, they don't want to be called out on that. Right. So it's better to keep that quiet and secret and, uh, and and not and not deal with it. And I think I think you're spot on. I think all of us, uh, myself included, I'm always the first to say, man, self included, need to repent, uh, need to need to examine our own hearts in these areas, uh, and turn from sin uh, and follow Christ. 
You know, um, Omaha, I have to say this, and, uh, you know, I say this as a challenge to those who are listening to me right now. Um, I remember in the uh, episode we did on pornography in the church, one of the statistics we share with our listeners in that episode, that close to 35% of regular users of pornography are women. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's a myth out there that women in general don't have a problem with pornography. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a myth. That's a myth. I think I meant to say stereotype. There's a stereotype out there that women don't have a, a problem with that. Mm-hmm. That it is still is predominantly a, a male issue if you look at the statistics. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are women, and there are women listening to me right now who profess to be believers who are engaging uh, in that habit, who are enslaved even to that habit. You know, I don't like to use the word addiction. I don't like to use the word addicted. Um, as a biblical counselor, I, I use biblical terms and vernacular. In scripture, when it comes to uh, uh, sins that the world will call being addicted to, scripture says you're enslaved to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, scripture uses describes it as enslavement. But sexual sin in the church is doing more damage to our witness for the gospel than anything else. And you're absolutely right, Omaha. It's that sin that the, but this is what I was alluding to when I spoke earlier that there are uh, professing believers today, we just love this world too much that we don't want to let go of it. And letting go of it is a way to, another way of saying what you just emphasized uh, being as, as repentance. Mm-hmm. We don't, we really don't want to repent. Right. Right. Not biblically. If we, because listen, man, let's keep it real. If we don't do anything on the, anything else on the just thinking podcast, we keep it real on here. Let's keep it real and say, we don't, want to repent of the sins we love to commit because those sins do something for us. Mm-hmm. They do more for us than what we want to do for Christ. Wow. Wow. Yep. Yep. So let's just keep it real. You want to stay in that uh, 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 for, uh, sexually fornicated relationship because that's you, you, that does more for you than repentance does with respect to your relationship with Jesus. Mm-hmm. You value that more than you value your relationship with Jesus. So you don't want to let go of that sin. There are other sins that we can speak of. Mm-hmm. I alluded to it earlier. Uh, listen, for those of you listening to me right now who have your secret OnlyFans accounts, you know who you are. Mm-hmm. You know who you are. Or other such accounts. It could be an Instagram account. It could be an Instagram account. Mm-hmm. Instagram, Instagram V has some of the most uh, vile. Uh, I don't even want to, I won't even describe it here, <laughs> but it, my point is this. It doesn't have to be what some will see as an extreme uh, right, uh, right. platform like right. OnlyFans. It could be right. your everyday social media platform. Right, right, right. Is, 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 is that you, listener, that I'm talking to? What, what else are you doing in secret that's really not secret? Because you know there are no secret sins. There are no such thing as secret sins. God sees you. He, only, he not only sees you, he sees the motive behind those sins. But this is what we're talking about in this episode of the Just Thinking Podcast about the church and the culture. Are you trying to walk a line between the two? Are you a hypocrite, in other words? Let me get back to my notes, man. Yeah, you better, you better, you better get back. You better stick to these notes, man. Before I get <laughs> before I get fired from my own show. 
<laughs> J.C. Ryle in his book, Holiness. By the way, if you have not read J.C. Ryle's Holiness, you need to read it. Mm-hmm. You need to read that book and go straight to chapter four, titled The Fight. Mm-hmm. Go straight to chapter four, titled The Fight, and then go back to chapter one. J.C. Rawls Holiness. J.C. Rawls says this, quote, The love of this world's good things, the fear of the world's laughter or blame, the secret desire to keep in with the world, the secret wish to do as others in the world do, and not to run into extremes. All these are spiritual foes which beset the Christian continually on his way to heaven and must be conquered, unquote. Did you hear that, listeners? The love of this world's good things are spiritual foes which must be conquered. Now, I said I had two questions, three questions rather. Here's question two. Question two. Has your heart truly been changed by the Spirit of God? Has your heart truly and genuinely been changed by the Spirit of God? Thomas Manton said, you are never changed till the heart be changed. And the heart is never changed till the will and love be changed. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21, that where where your treasure is, there is your heart also. Mm -hmm. Proverbs 27, 19. Proverbs 27, 19 says, as in water, face reflects face. So the heart of man reflects the man. What does your heart reflect, dear listener? What does your heart reflect right now as you listen to me? You see, Omaha, you can easily tell whether your heart belongs to the world or to God by conducting an honest assessment of the affections of your heart. Mm-hmm. The 17th century Puritan Edmund Calamy, who lived from 1600 to 1666, wrote in The Art of Divine Meditation, quote, Slight thoughts of God will make but a slight impression on the affections. And he that thinks slightly of God will serve him slightly and love him slightly. He that thinks slightly of sin will slight sin. He that thinks slightly of God, God will slight him, unquote. Conversely, the 17th century Puritan Arthur Hildersham, who lived from 1563 to 1631, said, quote, True religion, where it is received, will command the heart and the whole man. The heart and the whole man, Hildersham said. Let a man profess what he will. If his heart and life is not reformed, he is a hypocrite. And whatever worship he does to God is but a false worship, unquote. Now, my point in quoting Calamy and Hildersham, Omar, is that each of us knows our own heart. We know our heart. We do. We know what affections, for better or worse, reside there. Our, quote, love and will, unquote, as Thomas Manton framed it, are modeled after the affections of our heart. And to the degree that the affections of our heart are bent toward God, we will seek to, as Manton said, retire from the world. Likewise, to the extent that the affections of our heart are not inclined toward God, we will seek to be conformed to the world. And as we know from scripture, to be conformed to the world is to be an enemy of God. That's James 4, 4. Now, my third and final question, V, is this, and and the previous two questions could be subsumed under this final one. But the question is this, is the pursuit of holiness a priority in your life? Is the pursuit of holiness actually a priority 
in your life. Reverend G. Van Reenen said that the church is called holy because it is separated from the world. Now, I would suggest to you, Omaha, that holiness is merely biblical apartness, okay? Biblical apartness from the world in terms of lifestyle or our pattern of life. And I don't Mm -hmm. even tell you this, Omaha, but holiness in the life of the Christian is not talked about much today. Holiness isn't talked about much today. I mean, you survey the landscape of what passes today as evangelical Christianity, and that much is clear. And the reason holiness is not talked about very much today is because we don't want to do what it takes to be holy. We, We really don't. And what does that holiness look like? Well, it looks like, for example, contentment. That's Philippians 4, verses 12 and 13. It looks like self-denial. That's Matthew 16, 24. It looks like being rejected by those you love and care about. That's Matthew 10, verses 35 and 36. It looks perhaps like having a lower standard of living than the world suggests you should have or deserve. That's Matthew 6, verses 19 and 20. It could also look like something as simple or as innocuous as not having cable TV or Internet or a cell phone or a smart device for the sake of protecting your heart and mind against the ungodly messages and images that the culture would expose to you through those mediums. Mm -hmm. I mean, to sum up, pursuing holiness means carrying a cross. But we're often such hypocrites in that regard, Omaha. We don't mind carrying a cross as long as we can choose what kind of cross we carry. (laughs) We don't mind that at all. Mm-hmm. We'll carry a cross as long as we can choose the kind of cross we want to carry. But sadly, we are, as Charles Haddon Spurgeon said in his sermon titled, Sweet Peace for Tried Believers, quote, Any cross but the one I have, cried one. Surely it would not be a cross if you had the choosing of it. For it is the essence of a cross that it should run counter to our likings, unquote. Mm-hmm. Spurgeon said it is the essence of a cross that it should run counter to our likings. Thoughts on law? That's absolutely, again, in sum, what we've been saying. And I think your three questions really sum up what, you know, what we need to think about. Um, first was, are you, are, uh, are you one of those multiplied millions of professing Christians uh, who see this world as, as the culture promotes it as a place to frolic rather than the fight? Second question, has your heart truly been changed by the Spirit of God. And then finally, uh, is the pursuit of holiness a priority in our lives? I think all of those questions, we all should ask those questions of ourselves. Scripture is clear that, that we should examine ourselves to see if we are the faith. Uh, anytime I find myself in a, in, in a habitual pattern of sinfulness, I'm examining myself. I'm mm-hmm. saying, wait a minute, am, am I indeed of the faith? And I think that's all of what was being said in that section about about the pursuit of holiness. We don't hear holiness preached about or talked about for fear that w- that those who preach that way will will be called legalists. Uh, that they'll be called you know uh, that, that that you're 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 uh, uh, preaching legalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and no, none of none of the holiness that we that we uh, uh, exemplify in our lives is for the purpose of obtaining justification before a holy God. Right. All of it is for the purpose of a reflection of the fact that we, that our hearts have been captured by God through the spirit of God, that we've repented of sin, placed our faith in Christ Jesus. And because of that finished work, we have an understanding of the manner in which we should live. 
you you the, earlier this uh, can, week. Can, you know, can, you, I, you would, can I say one thing, yeah, Omaha? Can yeah, I jump in and say yeah, one yeah, thing? Yeah, yeah. As I listen to you say what you just said, I'm thinking about the woman who was caught in adultery. Mm-hmm. What did Jesus say to her? He said, "Go and sin no more." Yeah, we forget about that part. Now, was that legalism? It was not. Bingo. I rest my it case. It was not. I rest my case. Yeah, we, I I automatically thought, and you and I had a conversation earlier this week. Where I think you had, you during your your quiet time had been studying Romans chapter six. Yes, and uh, I I could as 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 you went through that section, that was exactly where my mind went to immediately. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it is part and parcel that, that that the Christians should should ask themselves who those who have received justification been made right before a holy God uh, have to ask themselves the same question that that Paul writes uh, to 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 the Christians in Rome where he says in chapter in chapter six verse one what shall we say then right. are we to continue in sin that grace may abound mm-hmm. by no means he says that mm-hmm. in the most emphatic way right. how can we who died to sin still live in it. Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 5, for if we have been united with him in his de- in, a, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin, that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we know we would no mm-hmm. longer be be enslaved to mm-hmm. sin. That's exactly what we're talking mm-hmm. about right here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're talking about ensuring that if we've indeed been been buried in, in the, into the death of Christ, we live in a way that doesn't that, that shows that we've not been enslaved to sin any longer. Right. Verse seven. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For death, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Mm-hmm. So you, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. I'll finish up with these last two verses in verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Is is that not what we're talking about right here? Exactly. That sums it up. That sums it up. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are no longer under the law, but under grace. Good stuff, Omaha. I appreciate that, man. You know, um, John Newton, John Newton in a correspondence dated October 3rd, 1778 to a young woman who had asked him how she could best ensure that she would not become ensnared by the temptations and attractions of an ungodly world, wrote this back to her. John, this is John Newton from October 3rd, 1778 quote it is an important question but i apprehend your own heart will tell you that you are already possessed of all the information concerning it which you can well expect from me i could only attempt to answer it from the bible which lies open to you likewise 
If your heart is like mine, it must confess that when it turns aside from God, it is seldom through ignorance of the proper means or motives which should have kept us near him, but rather from an evil principle within, which prevails against our better judgment and renders us unfaithful to light already received. I could offer you rules, cautions, and advises in abundance, for I find it comparatively easy to preach to others. But if you should farther ask me how you shall effectually reduce them to practice, I feel that I am so deficient and so much at a loss in this matter myself that I know not well what to say to you. Yet something must be said. In the first place, then, I would observe that though it is our bounded duty and the highest privilege we can propose to ourselves to have our hearts kept close to the Lord, yet we must not expect it absolutely or perfectly, much less all at once. We shall keep close to him in proportion as we are solidly convinced of the infinite disparity between him and the things which would presume to stand in competition with him and the folly as well as ingratitude of departing from him. But these points are only to be learned by experience and by smarting under a series of painful disappointments in our expectations from creatures, that is, from the world. Our judgments may be quickly satisfied that his favor is better than life. Did you hear that, listeners? Newton said, God's favor is better than life while yet it is in the power of a mere trifle to turn us aside from him, unquote. That was John Newton from October 3rd, 1778. Now, as we prepare to close out this episode of the Just Thinking Podcast Omaha on the church and culture, I want our listeners, I want to walk our listeners through a list of 20 reasons why you are not to love the world as compiled by the 19th century Puritan theologian and hymn writer Horatius Bonar. Bernard compiled this list of 20 reasons why you are not to love the world. And I will end with this reason one, because the gain of it is loss of the soul. That's Matthew 16 verse 25. Number two, because it's friendship is enmity to God. That's James four, four. Number three, because it did not know Christ. That's John 1 10. And then John 17, 25. Number four, because it hates Christ. That's John 7, 7 and John 15, 18. Number five, because the Holy Spirit has forbidden us. That's 1 John 2, 15. Number six, because Christ did not pray for it. That's John 17, 9. Number seven, because Christ's people do not belong to it. That's John 17, 16. Number eight, because it will not receive the Spirit. That's John 14, 27. Number nine, because its prince is Satan. That's John 13, 31 and John 16, 11. Number 10, because Christ's kingdom is not of it. That's John 18, 36. Number 11, because its wisdom is foolishness. That's 1 Corinthians 1, 20. Number 12, because its wisdom is ignorance. That's 1 Corinthians 1, 21. Number 13, because Christ does not belong to it. That's John 8, 23. Number 14, because it is condemned. That's 1 Corinthians eleven thirty two, Number 15, because the fashion of it passes away. That's 1 Corinthians seven thirty one, Number 16, because it slew Christ. Just James 5, 6 and Matthew 21, 39. 
Number 17, because it is crucified to us. That's Galatians 6, 14. Number 18, because we are crucified to it. That's Galatians 6, 14 again. Number 19, because it is the seat of wickedness. That's 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4 and 1 John 5, 19. And then number 20, because it's God is the evil one. That is 2 Corinthians 4, 4. And then Bernard wraps up that list. He sort of appends these words to that list of 20 reasons not to love the world by saying this. He says, love not the world. It cannot be your home. Thy fatherland must be the world to come. There lay up treasures for eternity. And where thy treasure is, thy heart shall be. Last thoughts, Omaha, as we wrap up. Man, man, great words, great thought. Love the whole of what we shared. As man, as we went through this, I mean, you you had some 16 authors that you cited. I, I, I think I had an additional four. I also added a Puritan prayer along with the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. This thing is power packed with more than 84 scriptural references. And so uh, my hope would be that the listeners would really take the time uh, go back through, listen to like 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 uh, like we encourage our listeners to always do. Go back with a pen, uh, some paper, and, and take some notes uh, in an effort to strengthen us as believers, so that we indeed understand that we are in the world, not of the world, and that we have a we have a reason to have strength in our witness. We have a reason to proclaim the truth of the gospel. Uh, and it's for the sake of a dying world. It is not for our own sake. We do not do this of, of, of our own selves or in our own strength. Amen. Amen, we do bro. all of this for the glory, for the glory of God. Uh, it's with that that I will, unless you got something else you want to add, I'll close us out, bro. Can you give the URL, URL again, man, to go pre-order the book, Why Are You Afraid? Can you give that one more time? Absolutely. If you're interested in getting our book, it's on pre-order right now. If you go to G3G, the number three, M-I-N dot O-R-G. Uh, forward slash why are you afraid again g the number three min dot org forward slash why are you afraid as always my brother it's always good to connect with you uh, behind these microphones man i'm glad we got in uh, another episode looking forward to to the feedback from this one there was some fire there was some heat uh, there, there was there was definitely some light that that got exposed, and so looking forward to what the listeners have to say. And again, until next time, thank you for joining us on the Just Thinking podcast. Peace. Just thinking, 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 thinking.